welcome to Paul's Podcast Diary, your weekly glimpse into the life of indie author Paul Teague. Find out how many words got written over the past seven days, hear what's on the planning board, and discover the tips and tools which Paul is using to self-publish his books and get them selling as fast as possible. This is Paul's Podcast Diary, and here's your show host, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Paul's Podcast Diary, episode 165 for Saturday the 10th of August, 2019. Coming up this week, I'm off travelling again, but did anything get done this week? I'm back on book sweeps, this time with my thrillers. I just hit a big target, but it's nothing to do with books. And in this special episode, 15 things I've changed my mind about in self-publishing. That will be coming up at the end of this episode. But first, my news. And I just wanted to let you know that I figured out how to get through the summer when I'm a bit squeezed for time with some special episodes. And I just let you know about that. So today we've got 15 things I've changed my mind about in self-publishing. And basically the reason I've recorded this extended episode is because I'm giving you some brief news this week. And uh, then we're going traveling. We're off visiting this week because it's the summer. And throughout the summer, it's pretty disrupted. So what I've done is I've pre-recorded some segments to make sure that you get a full episode every week over the summer vacation. So dates for your diary... Obviously, we've got the special episode today. On Saturday, the 17th of August, I'm going to be running the Bill Cocos End of Term Report on my writing. On Saturday, the 24th of August, Julie Cordoner will be joining me to give her end of term report on my writing. Talk about a glutton for punishment. On Saturday, the 31st of August, um, I've just introduced an episode. I just had a bit of inspiration the other day. And actually, this is especially Pip for Pip Reed, who really likes my tech session, she told me. So uh, it'll be a special tech uh, session exclusive for you, Pip, coming up on the 31st of August. And I'm calling it My Tech Toolkit for Indie Authors. I'll be running through some of the tech that I use in my indie author career. I just thought, oh, that's quite a nice little episode to run. Just to pull together all the resources that I'm using at the moment. I'll tell you how I make websites and do all the little bits that I do in my indie author career. And then finally, on the 7th of September, this gets us through the, the summer hump, if you want to call it that. For episode 169, I'm going to bring my rapid release strategy, all the strands together, because that is the Saturday before the first release of Now You See Her. So what I've been doing actually today, uh, the day I'm recording this, I've actually created a big spreadsheet with all the dates on, talking about when I put things on pre-release, when I change the prices, when I do the promos, or or, or the whole detail, the whole roadmap of the rapid re-release. And what I will do on Saturday, the 7th of September, obviously that's going to be evolving in between now and then, but on Saturday, the 7th of September, I will give you a completely up-to-date review of my rapid release strategy. I'll tell you where we're up to, what order everything's getting done, and any tweaks and changes that I've made in the meantime. But also, I will give you read access to that planning spreadsheet so you can take a look at my entire working spreadsheet that I'm using to navigate my way throughout that whole rapid release process. So that's the date for your diary. That's Saturday, the 7th of September. That gets us through summer when I'm squeezed for time. And thereafter, obviously, we're just back to the routine of the weekly podcast diary episodes. So this is good to be shorter in terms of news this week, but it's going to be a real long one. <laughs> so you need to settle in, find somewhere comfortable to sit, uh, make yourself cosy, get a nice drink. 
because the section about the 15 things that I've changed my mind about, that's actually quite a hefty section. I should have left it at 10, really, but I got carried away and it went to 15. But I hope you'll find it interesting. And obviously, you don't have to listen to it at one sitting. Just listen to it in multiple sittings if it's a little bit too long for you. Let's get on with this week's news then. And I want to give you this week's word count. And pretty well, I'm not writing this week. So I wrote on Sunday, the 4th of August... That was after last week's diary, of course. So this is the writing I need to tell you about. But on Sunday, the 4th of August, I wrote 5,087 words, so just over my 5,000 target. Now, rather than writing three chapters, I actually wrote three chapters and part of the prologue. If you recall last week, I told you that I hadn't quite got the story, in that I didn't think that the... I got all the tension, the suspense, I'd got the scenario right, but I needed to have this inciting incident. I needed to create this this tension of threat for the main character, and I hadn't quite figured out how to do that. Well, I managed to do that today. I'm quite happy with it. It's a nice scene. It's not even a long scene. I think it's about six or 700 words. It's just a, a cutaway scene. The other thing that I was struggling with is I didn't want to tell it in a different voice. I wanted it to be the protagonist's voice. But the protagonist is actually out of her head on uh, on drugs. On, on, on she's been sedated because she's in a psychiatric unit at the time. So I needed her to be drifting in and out of of consciousness, and barely aware of what was going on around her. So I managed to solve all those problems today. Happy with that. It took me quite a long time to write through that because I had to feel my way through it. But I'm happy with that now, and it comes in the first, well, in the prologue of the book. Set, it sets up the danger. And then thereafter, having set that up, everything else is tension. And I'm quite happy with the way I'm building the tension and the characters in the story now. It's all, it's all working very well. So I think this, this should be a straight right through now, having solved that initial problem that I had. I know what the ending is on this book. I know what the surprise is. So having said that, when I was writing today, I always use this term trust emergence. So that when you're writing, often you see things that you don't realize when you're planning. And I did actually have a thought about who the baddie might be today. And I thought, ooh, that'd be a nice little twist. So I, I as you know, I always line everybody up uh, because it, in my view, if, if I kind of don't know who it is, um, then it then you won't know who, who it is. Uh, or you can't see who I knew who it was from page one because that'd be pretty clever because often I don't know who it is from page one. So I just thought, hmm. Hmm, I might, I'll just follow that thread through and I might make it this person because that would be very unexpected. Um, but at the moment, I think I'm going to leave it as it is. I think I do like the ending. And when I spoke to a couple of people at 20 books, I did quite like the ending. So, um, it's just a little, it's a little banker. You know, if I suddenly think, oh, actually, that's, that, that falls a bit flat with my original ending, I got something in reserve in case I need it. But I can at least use this character for some misdirection. So that is it. That's the writing now. The book now is up to 15,000 words. That's almost a third of the way through as it's only a 50,000 word book. And that book is called Two Years After. I had hesitated again with the title thinking, oh, is two years a little bit too long? But actually, as it turns out in the context of the story, it's not. In the context of the story, basically, I have a a lady who leaves a workplace um, and her and her husband have a uh, an accident, a car accident, leaving a, a works leaving do. And um, there's death involved, obviously. She has a breakdown and spends some time in a psychiatric unit and has to get through all of those problems. So I needed her to be away from the workplace for a two-year period. 
and it just sort of works better for a slightly longer amount of time. And I had one that should I change that to a year? But I think two two years works as I'm writing now and explaining her time away and the experiences that she has. It, it works quite well. So I'm, I'm going to stick with that and I'm going to go with that. That feels good to have those words done. I'm not now writing for a while. It's quite nice, actually. I get a little break from writing now. And I won't be writing now until Thursday, the 15th of August. I'm writing Thursday, the 15th, Friday, the 16th. And then, would you believe it, we're off on another jolly. <laughs> so I did say it's summer holiday mode. And I did say that although I, it feels probably to you that I'm writing quite intensively, there's plenty, plenty of buffers in here for, for fun and frivolity and getting away from the writing. So I'm quite kind of happy with the way the summer's panning out. Editing-wise this week, no editing at all. Not getting any editing done at all. So I don't want to start anything. I don't want to start it and half finish it. So I don't start editing until Tuesday the 13th of August. And then I'm going to start work on what was called Burden of Guilt. And its new title is No More Secrets. So that's a light edit of a book that's already been properly edited. It's just me uh, going through it, just a last run, tweaking anything that I've changed my mind about in the meantime. And very possibly with that, but very possibly just changing the end slightly. I'll see how I feel about it when I read it. Uh, it won't. It doesn't need a lot of work. It's just a, the last sentence, last kind of page, last chapter. I can tweak that very easily. So I'll just see how I feel when I write, read it and then make that decision in the last uh day or two of, of doing the edits on that book. So that's my writing and editing news. On to general news now. And this week, my the, the remainder of my thrillers that in the Don't Tell Meg trilogy, they are now out of KDP Select. So I'm not quite sure why there was a, a lag in the timing, but basically Don't Tell Meg 2 and 3, when I bundle books 2 and 3, and Don't Tell Meg the box set, that's now out of KDP Select. And for some reason... The standalone books already are out of KDP Select. So I'm not quite sure why I got a time lag on those. It doesn't matter, frankly, but there was. And so they are now um, free. They're not in KDP Select. They're just sitting on Amazon. I haven't listed them wide. And I'm just going to leave them for a little while. The timing for that's perfect because it allows me to list don't tell Meg in book sweeps without any restrictions now. And it also, if I wanted to, I could use Don't Tell Meg in my book funnel giveaway because I don't have to... I'm just trying to think. I think there's a slight overlap, actually, with the book funnel giveaway. So I probably can't use Don't Tell Meg in the book funnel giveaway, but I can use it in the book sweeps giveaway because, if you recall, when you're in KDP Select, you could only use 10% for previews. You can't give away the whole book. So to remain Amazon legal... With my with my box set, I had to make sure everything's out, ready in time for book sweep. So it all happens on the same day, which is all rather nice uh, and very convenient. Now, why I'm just leaving Don't Tell Meg for now is I've got to decide whether to take the gamble of submitting it for a book bub. The next time it's due to go in for book bub is Sunday the 25th of August. So I have to decide whether I'm going to submit it as Amazon exclusive Therefore, I'll make my money from the sales and the reads or whether I'm going to submit it wide. Now, I think I'm going to submit it Amazon exclusive, even though that reduces my chances of getting a listing. And the reason for that is, is if I can get that book bump, that there's a two week gap there between when I start rapid release, a two or three week gap, actually, because I think the first one's Adams. So until uh, I start my rapid release is uh, 16th of September. There's about a three week gap, four week gap, something like that. So if I get the book bump, 
Amazon exclusive before I start the rapid release. That already gives my author name a bump. That would be really nice if that happened. So, um, you know, you, I, I'm sailing a bit closer to the wind if I make it Amazon exclusive. If I go wide, I stand more chance of getting the book bub. But I, the first time I ever listed it, they let me have it for Amazon exclusive. So I have a feeling I might take the risk and hope, hope that it goes Amazon exclusive. But I'll let you know about that when I've made my, my final call on that decision. My Book Sweeps Thriller promo began on Monday, the 5th of August, and it runs until Wednesday, the 14th of August. And the purpose of that, of course, is to get some pre-rapid release list building done. I, it gives me the opportunity to add, I mean, on a Book Sweeps, there are 45 people taking part in this Thriller promo. The thrillers always get more than the sci-fis do. So I should get a couple of hundred new leads off that, hopefully, um, if the Book Sweeps are working as well as they used to. And obviously, I'll just tip those into my MailerLite list. And then also, I've got my book funnel coming up and my prolific works, which will hopefully you know put some new leads in as well. So the purpose of that is that when I start my rapid release, the books are being released every Monday. And my list is going to get thrashed during that time. There's no point in having a list if you can't tell them about your books. And those books will be available at 99 pence or cents every Monday. They'll be available at that price for a week. Then the price will go up. So every Monday, my list will get an email telling them about my latest book that's on offer and saying you've got a week to buy it at 99 pence or cents. And then the price goes up the following Sunday. So um, Book Sweeps is pretty pivotal in that list building. I did very well last time I did it. And of course, also, we've got my book funnel giveaway. So my my Book Funnel and Prolific Works giveaways are scheduled to start on the 19th of August. Book Funnel's definitely going ahead. With Book Funnel this week, I have sent out the promotional graphics to all the participants because it's full now. So I can I can get that out. I've got all the book covers I need to make the promo graphics. I used Canva to make the promo graphics, makes it nice and easy, and I can mass produce lots of different versions of those promo graphics. Still not full with the Prolific Works promo, or the giveaway. So still waiting to top that out with contributors now. I think we're into maybe late teens or early 20s with Prolific Works, but we're not full yet. I've had lots of submissions, but they're rubbish, and I've knocked loads back on Prolific Works. It's a, you know, why, why does somebody send me a zombie book when I'm asking for thrillers? It's a crime suspense and psychological thriller giveaway, and I get a zombie book. It shows a complete misunderstanding of genre. And the other thing I think is, why why don't you just look at the page? Look at the other covers and ask yourself, am I going to fit in on that page? And with the zombie book, the answer is, no, you ain't going to fit in on that page. So I really don't know what goes through people's heads with these things. They just must be chancing it, mustn't they? They just must be throwing all the mud against the wall and hoping some of it will stick. But anyway, you're not getting in my giveaway. So I've knocked loads of them back on prolific works. And I still may have to cancel Story Origin. It's really, really flagging that one. I don't think we'll make it. So I might turn off the life support system on that this week. Or I might just wait till the end of the week and then do it. But I don't think we're going to make it with Story Origin. It's a shame. I only need 30 contributors. But I don't think we're going to get there. Uh, It obviously doesn't have the critical mass of users on Story Origin at the moment. I mentioned last week that one of the buzzwords of 20 books to 50k was reader links. This is a software service. And I had a play with that last weekend. There's quite a lot to set it up, quite a lot of fiddling to set it up. My view of it is I don't really know why they haven't made it work with APIs. Now, if you don't like tech talk, just put your fingers in your ears and go la 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 for 30 seconds. But uh, most softwares link with APIs. Uh, if you've used MailerLite, for instance, you'll use the API key with MailerLite, so maybe to, to link it to BookFunnel or 
something like that. And APIs are very simple to use, but they they just give direct links between two different software, so they interact well. I'm not really quite sure why Reader Links isn't using APIs. It's using just kind of slower, bit more cumbersome ways of, of linking up to Amazon. So I would say it's not a five-minute setup. Don't dive in there. Take the trial. I, think, I can't remember how long the trial is. It might be a month. It, it, it's certainly for at least 14 days. So you've got plenty of time on the trial to have a little play around. I feel like I need a little bit, bit more of a play around. And also, I've got to tell you that you, you kind of need to be doing all sorts of things. You need to be doing Amazon ads and I think Facebook ads. I think you need to be doing a lot of things to to get the benefit of reader link. So as far as I'm concerned, my personal jury is still out on reader links. There's, there's a lot to absorb. And when I had a play with it, I just thought, oh, I'm going to have to sit down and I'm going to have to do some reading. I have to read some instructions for reader links. Uh, so, so you know how hard that is. So I, I'm going to have to put a little bit more time by for it. I'll try and get that done in the next couple of weeks while I've got the free trial. And then I'll make a decision about whether I'm going to buy into it for the year and use my discount voucher. The other uh, big thing that everybody was talking about at 20 Books is Bookbrush. And I've I've used Bookbrush this week. They've got this new feature for paid members, and I am a paid member of it. And it's called Instant Mockups. And wow, this is so good. I would recommend if you if you have a book and you've got a book to promote. So if you can promote a book on social media in any way, Twitter, Facebook, wherever, and you want nice promo images for it, I would have to tell you now that you need to be into Bookbrush. It'll save you money on Fiverr. I used to get all this stuff done on Fiverr. Or you could still do it on Canva, to be honest with you, but these are a lot nicer than you get on Canva. So what uh, Bookbrush is doing now with the instant mockups feature is it creates, you put your covers up. So I loaded all my new covers and you can create, I think it's like a hundred, it must be over a hundred promo images of all sorts of different sizes. So they're Twitter sized, they're sized for Facebook and presumably Instagram. And they're sized, I think there's some Pinterest sizes in there too, because they look like Pinterest size images. I was primarily just using the Facebook and the Twitter images. But you, you upload your image, you, you click all the uh, little promo images that you want, click a button. It takes quite a while because it produces a lot of images for it. It downloads them as a zip file. Now, I've created some mock-ups for you so you can have a look at this because my powers of description are poor. But I, I've, if you go over to the show notes for this week, if you go over to selfpublishingjourneys.com, look up episode number 165, and you will see I've put a little gallery on the page there showing you a selection of mock-ups I've made with my brand new uh, Stuart Beige covers. And they look fantastic, and they require no artistic skill on my part whatsoever. I just did a batch on them. So I've gone through... I've gone through Bookbrush now, and for every single one of my new covers, I have created a set of those promotional graphics, and that is going to give me a massive armory. When I start pushing these books, it's going to give me loads of different images to use. I can use them in Facebook ads, and um, I need to create some for BookBub ads as well. I'll be using BookBub ads, but it's absolutely fantastic. So I've got to tell you, I have recommended Bookbrush to you before, but I'm going to tell you now that with that feature alone that makes it worth having book brush. And I can't remember what I paid for book brush. It's less than, it's less, I'm sure it was less than a hundred dollars. It's, it's not a lot for book brush. It really isn't, uh, not, not for the year. And if you think that when I start doing this rapid release, I'm going to virtually live in book brush, creating bespoke images for my, uh, bookbub's ads. These aren't the big bookbub expensive promos. These are the ads that run on bookbub. All of my books are going to be going in bookbub because I find that much easier to advertise on. So, Bookbrush is going to get hammered 
during that rapid re-release. But please do have a look at these mock-ups that I've made and just see the quality and just how fantastic they look. You must give Bookbrush your time if you if you are promoting your books now because that was just a fantastic tool uh, and it will save you. I've, I've paid before to have things like this made up by graphics designers. It's just absolutely fantastic. Uh, do check that out. And by the way, on the show notes, if you want to support this podcast, if you decide to buy Bookbrush, I've put my promotional link, my affiliate link or my referral link on the show notes. Uh, you don't pay any extra if you use that referral link, but it gives me a kickback. I'm not even sure what the kickback is, a small financial kickback. And obviously that helps to pay for the costs associated with this podcast. So if you do buy through my referral links, that really helps to keep the show on the road, particularly while we don't have a, uh, a Patreon account or anything like that, any other sort of form of sponsorship. I did want to mention something I'd noticed in my Amazon panel. I'm getting on very well, by the way. You know, I said I'd stop book report and I'm now in this new KDP select dashboard. I've made the change. I won't be going back to book report. I've, I'm completely used to this new interface now. And uh, so I'm really sorry, book report, but uh, you've been blown out of the water. I really like that new interface. I like the, I like the financial prediction. It's very accurate and I can see my books at a glance. It's one of the dangers, as I've said before, of building on a third-party platform. But they're really, unless BookFunnel come up with something really quite incredible, it's not not BookFunnel, but reports. There's no point in having it really now. You don't need to pay for it. So I have made the change completely. But when I was looking at those stats, I noticed this last month, and I've noticed it now. We're into a new month as well. Absolutely fascinating. My sales. Um, so remember, I've had a book bubble in the last. Is it last six weeks? Something like that. My sales for the Secret Bunker Two and the Secret Bunker Three. They are my most sold books at the moment, as you'd expect, as a result of being in a book bub. But the the amount of money that I've earned on The Secret Bugger 2 and The Secret Bugger 3 is almost exactly the same. The, there's a fraction of a difference between how... And I've obviously sold slightly more of book two than I have of book three, as you, as you would expect, because you've got to read them in order, of course. But that that's fascinating. So what that tells me, that if you make it as far as book one, obviously the big statistic is how many read-throughs do you get from book one? That's the statistic I need to know and haven't calculated yet because I'm a bad boy and I don't do things like that often enough. But um, obviously what I need to know is the read-through from book one. That's the key one. But what that does tell me, just at a glance, without having to do any maths, is that once people have read book one, if they move on from there, if they don't just throw it away or burn it or put it in with the trash, if they read book one and get to book two, virtually everybody who gets to book two reads book three. That's almost 100% read-through, which is incredible. Now, I will not have 100% read-through from book one. I know that, and that, that really is the crucial figure to read. But um, I just found that fascinating. That was just a, one of those at-a-glance statistics that you could just see, um, you know, without having to do any maths or any thinking about it. But uh, that's fascinating. It's been like that for weeks, almost level pegging. Um, just uh, book two, just very, very fractionally ahead all the time. But it's, yeah, fascinating that. Never seen that before. And then in my news, uh, pretty well my final piece of news this week, I did say it was going to be briefer and I am rattling through it a bit quicker this week. I wanted to tell you that I've reached my first big goal and this is going to relate to running. But uh, if you if you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll know, I think I set this at the beginning of the year. When I set my yearly goals, I said to you that I was setting goals for when I'm 55 in March 2020. So I set some really big goals for March 2020. And a lot of those goals were related to health and fitness. So if I just revise or remind you what they were. I wanted to have 20 books written by March 2020. I wanted my weight to be 10 stone 7 pounds. 
I, I wanted to have done, I'm doing 55 park runs by then. And then I want to have 10 different park run venues by that date. And the, one of the big targets was to run a uh, sub 30 minute run. Now, when I first started doing park run, I was running it in 38 minutes. And that time came down bit by bit by bit. It was hard one. So on Saturday, oh, well, the other thing is I had run sub 30 minutes at different park runs, but I couldn't do it at Carlisle. Now, Carlisle has more hills. It's a tougher run. Many park runs are absolutely flat, and that's where I was getting my sub 30 minute timings. But I could not get it at Carlisle. I was, I, I, however hard I pushed, I couldn't get that sub 30 minute time, even though I was doing it elsewhere. And it is, it is quite a tough course. And another, I think everybody pretty well acknowledges that who does the run. Well, on Saturday, um, I flew through. And not only did I break that target of sub 30 minutes, my tie actually got the best ever time I've had. So better than all the flat courses or anything like that. So I did Carlisle in 28 minutes, 23 seconds. And I got a, a really good position. Uh, I'm usually 180 something. It was about 101st. Now don't, I don't ask me what happened there. Um, but 28 minutes, 23 seconds on my watch. I had a, I have a little dodgy Casio stopwatch because i just got it cheap from argos so i could get an idea of my time my watch had 28 16 so i, I pretty well knew when i'd done the run that i was going to get um certainly i was going to get below the sub 30 but uh you get the official results and the official results say 28 minutes and 23 so not only is that my best time i've now beaten my target seven and a half months early which leaves me with a bit of conundrum because that's a bit early to hit your target, isn't it? It feels like all well, the challenge has gone now. So what, what I wanted to say to you about that is, uh, is that, again, to quote Robin Sharma, a guy who I like to listen to in podcasts, where you put your focus is where you get your results. Where you put your focus is where you get your results. Um, if I hadn't started doing that, I wouldn't be running a 28-minute 5K now. But because I made a target of that, and I've focused and focused on achieving that target, then we've blown that target out of the water seven and a half months early. I can't believe I've done that because obviously it was too tame a target, but that's knocked, it's not more than 10 minutes off my original time. So when I started running from nothing, I hadn't done any running for a long time when I started in October. Um, I was in pain. <laughs> I went to see my one of my kids uh, at university after I'd done that run. I remember having to sit on a bench because I could barely walk. I was so sore. So we've gone from that to, to doing the run in that time. So I, I feel pretty chuffed about that. But it has left me with a bit of a dilemma because I've hit that target a bit early. The other thing I did, I was surprised at this because when I was at 20 books, you know what it's like when you're away from home? You're not eating, you're not eating normally. And I, I had a couple of pub meals and I had a pint of cider with each of those meals. So your, your eating is out of, out of habit. Well, I thought, oh, there's no way my weight's going down. When I, I always weigh myself after the park run on the Saturday. But my weight was down too. So my weight's now 10, 10, 10 stone, uh, 10 pounds. And I'm only three pounds off my target weight, which is 10 stone. Seven. So I'm fairly confident I'm going to hit that before time too. So in, in many respects, it, it feels a bit like an anticlimax because I had every intention of working towards that, that time goal slowly over the year and I thought oh you know I'll probably get that about October time if I keep working at it and I've just got it in I've just got it way ahead of time so um so what what what's the next target now in terms of weight if I hit that 
10 stone, 7 pounds weight, which it looks like I'm going to do reasonably soon. I think it might go up a bit over summer because there's so much disruption over summer. I think I might have to pull it back. So, you know, so long as I'm in the ballpark for the weight thing, I'll hit and hopefully maintain that target weight by March 2020. But as far as running goals are concerned, I guess the instinct at this point is to say, well, oh, let's make that 25 minutes. Let's try and do 5K in 25 minutes. Well, interestingly, a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember who I was talking to. I was talking to a chap who I run with, uh, somebody, interestingly, somebody who I met doing one of my sessions that I did in Carlisle, one of my self-publishing sessions that I did locally. And I've met, it's interesting, I've met two people who attended those sessions who've been waving at me. And I, I happened to meet both of them at the self-publishing sessions I did in Carlisle. So there you go, runners who are, uh, who are writing or writers who are running, whichever way round you want to put it. But it's been very nice. So I was uh, chatting to this gentleman that we that we know. We were talking about how fast we used to do it when we were younger. I was saying, oh, I used to run when the kids were, were tiny. And, I, I, and I, I dug out in my scrapbooks my running times to try and work out how fast I was running when I was a much younger man, when I was 30, 34, 35, when the kids were tiny. And I worked out that I could, when I, 20 years ago, I was able to do a five-kilometer run in 25 minutes so I'm what three three and a half minutes off the time I could do when I was 35 now let me tell you you youngsters listening to this you you'll ignore all of this but when you get to my age you need to hang on to things like this so if I was able to do a five kilometer run in the same time that I was able to do it when I was 35 I've discovered the elixir of youth everybody (laughs) well not quite that but it would be quite a nice thing to be able to run in the same time that I could when I was uh, 35. Now, you know, I'm not a fit guy. I wasn't particularly fit when I was 35. I had done a lot of running around that time. And then, uh, you know, the kids were young and I got kind of embroiled in in family life and didn't keep it up after that. Um, So I'm going to have a very loose target. This is, I'm not going to, set this in stone but very loosely if I if I was able to to get that 25 minute five kilometer run that would be quite nice just at a personal level to be able to do the same speed as I did when I was 34 35 years old but um rather than set myself ridiculous targets because you know you know what happens with this if you break a target I'm going to just keep making it more extreme the whole point of this isn't to become superhuman or a super athlete to be running marathons or any of that nonsense I don't want to do that the point of this is to set up a habit that keeps me healthy for life and that runs nicely alongside my author business. I'm trying to keep myself healthy and fit as I get older. I don't want to be some superhuman marathon running megastar. That's not what the aim of this is. So I'm resisting setting ridiculous targets. So what I've decided to do is the next target, because you know what I'm like with targets, the next target I'm setting myself is to be able to do the Carlisle run, because that's the tough I remember. I want to get five of those in under under I want to sort of prove to myself that it wasn't a fluke so my next target is to get five Carlisle runs in under the 30 minute mark five of those runs and then after that I'll make it 10 runs but I, I don't I don't want to increase that target ridiculous I just want to keep keep it up so I could do a sub 30 so long as I'm running in between 25 and 30 that feels about right for me it's not a superhuman speed. It's just a kind of normal, reasonably fit kind of guy speed. And that's what I'm going to go for. So um, really, really chuffed with that. But in many respects, it just feels a bit of an anticlimax because I was thinking, oh, that's a nice little target to aim for when I'm 55. And I've just 
puffed it out of the air just like that. So, um, yeah, I, I, part of me was celebrating, thinking that's fantastic. The other part of me was thinking that I don't want to just keep having to set increasingly ridiculous targets. So it is nice to have hit that target, though. I, I'm feeling reasonably pleased with myself about that one. Okay, before we move on to the next section, I just wanted to mention Jerry Evanoff this week. Uh, Jerry has been in Scotland. He, he made a holiday of it. So he went to 20 books, 50k. I think you were there for the whole thing, weren't you, Jerry, for the whole seven days. And then he, he loves to play golf. So I, I hope you got your game at St Andrews, Jerry. At the time of recording this, you've, you've not done a podcast update. So I hope you got your game at St Andrews. But if not, I hope I know I know because you put it on Twitter that you got a nice game of golf somewhere in Scotland because you had a very nice outlook wherever you were playing. But one of the things I said to Jerry is if you go to St Andrews, you've got to go to the secret bunker. It's just down the road. You've got to go to the secret bunker. Jerry writes sci-fi. And I said to him, you, you can't like be I don't know how many miles it is. It's not a very long drive from St Andrews to the secret bunker. I said, you can't be there, Jerry, as a sci-fi fan and not look at the bunker, the, the tourist destination. It's this massive nuclear bunker, the size of two football pitches, over two levels underground. It's fantastic. And you know when you, you, you're enthusing to people about something, and you think, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know whether they're as enthused about this as I am. And, um, and I was so chuffed because uh, Jerry put a tweet on Twitter, as you would do, and he said, it's about the normal time on a Saturday where I listen to Paul Teague's podcast, but today I've got some reading to do instead. And it's fantastic. He's got a picture of the bench outside the secret bunker. You can see the military vehicles that they've got stationed all around it. And Jerry's bought in the shop. He's got into the shop and he's bought a copy of each of the uh, copy of the installments of the trilogy. He's got book parts one, two, three of the secret bunker trilogy. He's taken a nice photo on the bench with my books there and an outlook onto the secret bunker. So, I mean, number one, thanks for buying the books, Jerry. That's fantastic. But what, you know, what a thrill that is that a science fiction author from the States, um, I'm really pleased you went to see it. I hope you loved it, Jerry. I hope you loved the secret bunker. I hope, you know, I hope it inspired you as much as it did me when I went to see it. It inspired that series of books. I loved it so much. Um, so I hope you had a good look around. Thanks for buying the books. But I'm so pleased you went to look at it. And um, I will look forward to listening to your next podcast episode to see how you got on with it. But I really hope you enjoyed it because if you're a sci-fi fan, you've really got to go to that bunker if you're in the in the neighbourhood. So, so thank you for doing that. I, I sort of appreciate you taking me up on my recommendation. I hope it was worth the journey for you because I know you've clocked up a lot of miles. Okay, that's it for this week's Podcast Diary news updates. It's time for the musical interlude and 15 things I've changed my mind about in self-publishing. This extra bit in the Podcast Diary for this week is called 15 Things I've Changed My Mind About in Self-Publishing. And if you've got the tenacity <laughs> to have listened to the podcast diaries from the first one, I've been doing this about three, three and a half years now, I think, um, then you'll know that I've learned so many things. I've changed my mind about so many things. I've dithered about so many things. And I kind of wanted to just pick out maybe some of the main points where I, I've changed my mind. And I got to tell you, I've got to get this on record. I reserve the right to change my mind again about this stuff. Uh, there's no point um, setting course and then saying, well, that's it. I'm going on this course and I'm never going to change. I'm quite happy to change my mind. Um, you know, you might feel passionate about one thing one minute and then learn something completely different and it changes your point of view. 
So we are sort of navigating choppy seas as far as I'm concerned. And uh, sometimes we have to course correct with this. So I've, I've jotted down 15 things that I think come up fairly regularly or have featured as an important part of these diaries. And I just wanted to talk you through them to tell you what my thinking is, and just to let you know where I am now. But in a year's time, this all might change, but it might help you in your decision making process as well. So number one in this list of 15 things then is the the argument or the discussion that is going to go on forever, I think, which is do I go wide or do I put my books in KDP Select? So I think when I listed my books originally, I went wide. I was lucky enough to have one of the old Google accounts. I listed in Draft the Digital and I put my books on Amazon and I just kind of figured out that that was what you did. Now, I can tell you that when I was wide first time and I hadn't got a clue what I was doing, I didn't have enough traction to get BookBub promos. I was at that stage where I'd just written books. I wanted to publish them and I hadn't got a clue what to do to get web traffic to them, to get eyeballs over my books. I did very, very little by way of business in going wide. So I can tell you that uh, these are rough numbers, uh, but when I had gone wide the first time, I think I'd pretty well registered in my draft digital account. This is probably the best indication of this, about a thousand sales. And I put sales in inverted commas because that includes free books. And to be honest with you, that was the majority of those were free books. And at the time of recording this, I'm, I've exceeded 50,000 now. So my course plot, if you want, with going wide was that when I knew nothing about it, I think I probably got to The Secret Bunker and The Grid uh, while I was wide. So I probably had six sci-fi novels, maybe not even any thrillers when I was wide originally. And that got me about a thousand sales stroke downloads. And then when I came back to that's that's what my numbers were when I came back to going wide more recently, when I knew I had a better idea of what I was doing and could get, could, could get BookBub promos. And now I've added 49,000 to those numbers in, in quite a short time. I don't know what that time is, but I, I would guess no more than a year. So I, what I would have to say, my conclusion from that is, and, and I know Joanna Penny's really big on going wide, that I totally understand why you should go wide. I absolutely get it. And I've said it on a number of occasions. One of my early experiences was when I built the software on Facebook. Facebook changed all the rules and all of a sudden my software was was obsolete. It was no use. I know the dangers firsthand of building your business on one portal. In this case, when you go with KDP Select, you're trusting Amazon completely. I knew people or I knew of people when I entered internet marketing who had made a lot of money listing digital downloads on eBay. And then overnight, eBay decided to change their policy. They didn't accept digital downloads and those people lost their businesses overnight. So I am extremely aware of the danger of building your business on a single portal. So I know the danger of going into KDP Select. Amazon could change the rules. They can pull your books if they, they get in a tiz about you for whatever reason, whether that's right or wrong. Um, they can harm your business in all sorts of ways. So um, philosophically, I am absolutely signed up to going wide. But sometimes it's you need to get to money in the pot because if you don't have money in the pot, you don't have a business. And if you don't have a business, you're likely to give it up, particularly with writing. So I am using, in my rapid release strategy, I'm using KDP Select strategically, knowing 
that that's not how I'm going to do things forever. Um, I'm doing it as a short-term functional strategy to bring some money in and to try and give my books a boost. But long-term, I am signed up to wide. I completely get the philosophy of wide. But the grim reality of it for me, and I suspect probably a lot of new authors, unless you you know, get that breakout book, unless you can find an audience very, very quickly, you're not going to shift a lot of books on the other portals. Even people who are wide, even Joanna Penn will tell you that she gets most of her income on her books from Amazon. And that, unfortunately, is the gritty reality. So I don't want to be an author who writes a certain number of books and says, I can't make money out of this because I'm listed wide. And so therefore gives it up because it becomes demoralizing. I am strategically going into KDP Select because there is a strategy that you could use on Amazon when you're narrow, the opposite of wide. You could use rapid release, which is why I'm trying that best practice strategy. And I'm going to see if I can make it work for me. But long term, I totally understand that my books need to be wide. I want my books listed in as many places as possible. Um, You know, I want them available in China and in India. I really subscribe to that. So my opinion on being wide, KDP Select, has been fluid because I've been wide, then I went KDP Select, then I went wide again, and then I've gone back to KDP Select again. And I suspect it will continue to do that strategically, but my, but philosophically, I'm wide. That's what I subscribe to, that philosophy. But strategically, I need to go KDP Select sometimes. Um, and, and again, that, that's going to probably ebb and flow. But the, the the reality of it is that when I do book bubs, when I'm wide, I make my money out of Amazon and Apple and I can make the same money wide, but it's split then when I'm wide between Amazon and Apple. It's taken me, I've shifted a lot of books recently doing the book bubs. I've only just pulled past the thousand pound mark on Kobo. It's been slow, slow, drip, 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 drip through Kobo. Um, I've participated in their promos. I've tried to follow best practice, but it, it's some income but it's just it's nowhere near as much as I would make on Apple and on Amazon. Um, Google Play has been okay, uh, but it's probably the smallest amount of income. And actually, Barnes & Noble has been the third source of income for me. Um, That's been a huge surprise to me. So in order of my earning capacity, it's Amazon, then it's Apple, then it's Barnes & Noble, um, then it's the other one, Kobo, and then it's Google Play. Um, those are my that's those are my rankings, and I think probably maybe with the odd little twist and turn, that's probably what most people experience when they're wide. So, wide philosophically, KDP Select strategically deployed. Number two on the list then: paperbacks and Ingram Spark. When I started publishing, I got paperbacks done just by default because that's what I assumed that you did, and it was. I haven't been doing it for very long, only since 2014, 2015. And when I started self-publishing, the way I did it was I had to use HTML and I had to use Word, really. We didn't have Vellum in those days. I'll talk about that later. Um, So it was quite hard to do. It was quite painstaking. didn't really enjoy doing it. I don't enjoy working with Word. And so what I did originally is I did create space. I uploaded the books wide, the digital versions of the books, and then I heard about Ingram Spark and I tried in Ingram Spark as well. So I've tried all the, all the options with this. And I, and this is not necessarily a typical experience because I know authors 
who who do really well with paperbacks. But paperbacks don't really sell very well for me. I think it's fair to say that's a typical author experience. If you're an author who sells a load of paperbacks, I don't th- I don't think that's the typical experience for a self-published author. I think that's fair to say. So I got paperbacks done. Now, with my first series of books that I did, the Secret Bunker trilogy, I that is an exception to the rule because that series of books is based around a tourist destination in Scotland. And I contacted them and they buy the books 90 at a time and they stock them in the book shop, in the shop there. And I think, I don't know, I think this is true, uh, that I'm their best selling book in there. I think they sell the most copies of my book. I think that's true. I'm sure I've had an email. Well, I have had an email saying that, but um, I'm sure that's true. So that's what the email said. So um, 90 books at a time is well worth me doing. Um, So I'm pleased I got those really nice covers done for the Secret Bunker trilogy. And I will continue to do that because I sell a lot of paperbacks through the bookshop and that suits me fine. But what I learned later on from my numbers is that I I must shift nearly 90%, make 90% of my money from digital sales. And obviously it, it costs less and it's a lot easier. I also listed my books at Ingram Spark. I have a love-hate relationship with Ingram Spark in that I have absolutely, absolutely nothing against Ingram Spark. I think they do a great job. I think their learning materials are great. You know, they support authors. Absolutely nothing against Ingram Spark. Um, I would like them to just improve their interface a little bit. So I remember that the first time I listed my books on Ingram Spark, um, I had a devil of a job working out an issue with embedded fonts. And, and I'd never used embedded fonts before. Um, and I, I get how it works, but I hadn't got a clue how to do it. Um, nowadays with Vellum, it just makes life a lot easier. Um, but I had to learn that and figure it out. And that wasn't very good. And the other thing with Ingram Spark is, is that when you change your spine width um, on a book, so if you re-edit a book, which I've done with pretty well all of mine now, sometimes the spine width changes. And I found Ingram Spark really difficult to to adjust the spine widths, whereas on Create Space and, and the KDP version now, um, I can I can usually work that out pretty well doing some jiggery pokery in Canva. I can usually figure that out myself without having to pay a fortune to sort of go back to the designer to do it. So much as I love Ingram Spark and I I get what they do. Obviously, they they make your book available to bookshops. The first shock I had when I went to Ingram Spark was how much discount they wanted. I think it's like seventy percent discount, and then there's also the option of sale or return. So in theory, not only do I just make pennies on my paperbacks if I if I sell to to bookshops, if I put the seventy percent expected discount on, in theory. They don't do this, but in theory, they could order a hundred of my books. Not only do I make virtually no money out of that, they could then send them back for for pulping. Well, I'm sorry, but I ain't doing that. Um, I don't I don't care that much about getting my books in bookshelves. If somebody else is taking the risk on that, that's fine. But that's a crazy business proposition, and I'm not doing it. Not as a uh, an independent author. So I, I got out of that fairly quickly, and then I, I did come back to Ingram Spark to. You know, thinking, well, maybe I ought to make these secret bunkers and some of these books available for bookshops. It would be quite nice to have a word with the local Waterstones and see if they get the books in. But every time I do it, I I just come across some kind of headache, usually with the covers. And it's only because, you know, if I just paid and got the covers done and I did it properly, it, it would be fine. But because I've paid once to get the covers done, quite a lot of money, and then I'm going to have to pay a lot of money again to get the spines done. You know, it's just... 
I don't know whether you've heard of the 80-20 rule that you get 80% of your results from 20% of your effort and 20% of your results from 80% of your effort. It feels like an 80% effort, 20% results kind of job for me that because I know it's really just a vanity metric. If I just happened, I'm not going to get my books in all of Waterstones, but I might get them in my local Waterstones. And to me, that's a vanity metric. It's very nice to go and take a photo of a book in Waterstones against all the others if I if I can even manage that. But you know what? It's It doesn't really matter. I'd rather be shifting them by the bucket load via a, via a book bub promo and bringing some money in from them. So I, I don't really care about vanity metrics. So the way I've settled with paperbacks, um, and this is my kind of compromise with paperbacks now, because I know I don't sell that many of them. Now, if that changes, if I find another outlet for, for paperbacks, if, the, if I find a way of selling them, if, if I refer back to a gentleman called Cueve McDonald, who, who I met at an Amazon event and Cueve, um, was a comedian, used to do stand up comedy and, um, and sold his books off the stage. So I know Cueve, you know, would sell and autograph a lot of books because he had a, a platform to sell those books. That's brilliant if you've got that platform. And I've got the platform at the secret bunker as well. So where you've got a platform to sell your paperback books, absolutely, you know, go all for it but I don't have a platform it's not something I want to do I don't want to sit in libraries doing talks and things like that um, I'm an internet guy and I want to pile them pile them high um, in digital terms and shift them that's that's really all I care about I'm not really and this might change you know all of this might change in the future but at the moment I just want to uh, get the books out sell them digitally and shift as many as I can uh, and produce them I say as cheaply as I can I mean get a proper edit and I mean get a proper cover um, but you know messing around with with Ingram Spark trying to get everything right isn't just a good use of time for me knowing how many copies I will sell so my compromise with this is because I still do want to uh, provide paperbacks for my readers and I, I know that people still value paperbacks what I do now is I get a high quality Amazon cover, so a ebook cover. And when I, I list the ebooks on the Amazon portal, and what I do is I use their make your own cover option where I just put the high quality cover on. So frankly, in anything that Amazon does to advertise the book, you always get this really lovely cover that's been designed by Stuart Bache or, you know, somebody else who I've paid to get the cover done with. So high quality cover, that's really important. Talk about that later. And then what I do is I, I use the color picker. So, um, I, I take the core color from the cover, from the book cover. And to, to do that, you, um, it's a little bit of geeky stuff here. I upload the cover image to an online portal called, um, it's, a, they call it a hexa, hexadecimal color. It's the colors that you use on the web. And basically it allows you to click an area on the cover and it tells you the hexadecimal color um, that you're using on the cover and you can then use that precise color on your Amazon cover and I've just found that when I do that with a lovely Stuart Beige cover pick the main color out and then use that for the coloring on the spine and the back uh, cover and then I just um, put my blurb on and a photo and, and Amazon will add the the barcode they look great I got them on my shelf um, they look great and so that's my compromise now um, I wouldn't do it without using the color picker the color picker harmonizes it and makes it look um, you know professional it makes it look like it's been done properly but I do not have a problem in terms of a cheap way to produce paperbacks I don't have a problem with that. I've got the books to my right here on the shelf and they look absolutely fine. Now, ideally, obviously, I would get beautiful covers done and then have pictures on the back and whatnot, but I don't sell enough books. And to me, that's a kind of 80-20 rule thing. It means that I provide 
paperback books for my customers. I know that many people value paperback books. I'm very happy to have them available, but I don't want to spend ages and a fortune on getting them done. And that's a beautiful compromise. Um, and it, it keeps my cover costs down because I'm only paying for the, the Amazon cover. I'm not paying for the spine and all that uh, uh, arrangement that adds a lot of price to your covers. So to me, it's a good kind of bootstrapping compromise. It gets the job done. It keeps the quality up. It means I can sell paperbacks. Now, again, that may change. For instance, if somebody said to me, hey, Paul, we're doing a, an author tour of the North, East and West. Want to join? And I said yes. And I suddenly needed paperbacks and I got a way of selling paperbacks. Fine. I might pivot from that. But at the moment, that's my position with paperbacks and Ingram Sparks. I'm not listing on Ingram Spark uh, at the moment. Um, I am listing on Amazon and I'm putting my paperbacks through Amazon as well. And that's that's the only places I'm listening. I wanted to mention Project Bloodhounder. This is number three on my list of things I've changed my mind about in self-publishing. Because the other day I just thought, oh, let's pick an old podcast episode, a diary episode. And let's have a listen and see where I was in my author career at that time. And I'd, just, I'd completely forgotten this. But um, about a year ago, maybe slightly more, I was, yeah, it was slightly more actually. It was, um, it must have been about January 2018. I became hellbent on, uh, trying to get a thriller written for Bloodhound Books. Can't remember. I think I'd interviewed Bloodhound Books. I knew a lot of authors who were with Bloodhound Books. And I decided that if I did get a more traditional kind of arrangement, that Bloodhound Books would be one of the outlets. And, and I still maintain that. Bloodhound Books, is it Joff? Joffa Books? Joff? Not sure, Joff Books. Um, and what's the other one? I've forgotten which one it is. But Bookature, Bookature. Um, very, very interested in all of those three. Still interested in all of those three. Um, so I haven't, I haven't ruled them out. But um, a year ago, I said, right, I, you know, I, I was really frustrated with where my sort of author career was going. It wasn't, I wasn't making enough money from it. I wasn't moving the needle. So I thought strategically, let's write a book specifically for Bloodhound Books. Let's try and get Bloodhound Books to publish that. And then I get into their group of authors. And when they go to Harrogate for the Crime Festival and things, they might ask me along. And I just get that that benefit of being in the group, if you want, that expert positioning of being with other authors. And actually, even as I'm saying it to you now, I'm not discounting this at all in the future because I, I think it's extremely valuable thing to do strategically. I don't ever want to be all in um, I don't ever want to be all in with a more traditional arrangement, but I definitely would would do it strategically. So uh, I was writing um, the book So Many Lies Was Good to Be for, for Bloodhound. I called it Project Bloodhound because I was specifically going to write a 90,000 word psychological thriller, which I was then going to submit to Bloodhound Books. And um, I wrote So Many Lies. And about halfway through So Many Lies, I just realized this is the same book that I normally write uh and I don't write, I don't think there's nothing wrong with the books that I've written, but it was not what I should be sending to Bloodhound. That's basically what I realised. They're not, Bloodhound aren't going to go for this, I don't think. Um, you know, readers will be fine, but this is not what Bloodhound will be looking for. I got a bit frustrated with myself halfway through that book. And I said, well, that, that isn't going to be the book that I send to Bloodhound books. Interestingly, the book I've just written, uh, now you see her, probably is the sort of book I should be sending to Bloodhound Books. Uh, that is the sort of book I should be sending to Bloodhound Books, actually. I, um, if I hadn't done that in collaboration, um, I hadn't got an outlet for that. That's the sort of uh, book that I would have sent to Bloodhound Books now. But I'm putting that through rapid release, of course. Um, and it was just interesting to hear myself talking about Project Bloodhound and thinking, well, actually, I've completely ditched that idea for now. And I just wanted to give some explanation about that because... 
it was it was kind of my burning aspiration at that time. So why why didn't I proceed with that? Well, the reason I didn't proceed with that uh, was a, c- a couple of reasons. I I think that while I was writing for Bloodhound Books, I got my first book bub, and I made about five thousand, six thousand pounds in a month with 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 my Don't Tell Meg trilogy. And I think when I committed to Project Bloodhound, I was probably in quite a a, a low place in terms of I'm writing these books and I'm just not just not getting anywhere. I'm just not having good months and things like that. And on that first promo that I got with BookBub, there was a, a local author that I only I only know through social media. I've n- never met him personally. Bizarrely, I don't know why. Uh, he lives in Cumbria though, and he got to number one on the Amazon charts and things uh, on the free promo day because he was on. But he did a BookBub promo the same day as me. And I was at number two and we were, I, I emailed him to congratulate him and send a screenshot and things. And then the next day, cause I think I got a few, I think I'd followed it up with a free booksy or something like that. He's, he was, he was with Bloodhound and his book tumbled very fast and I hung around for quite a long time and, and, and did, you know, did very well out of it. And I thought, well, if I've earned, let's just say 5,000 pounds in a month and I'm on 70% of the royalties, well, he's with Bloodhound and he, gets a lot less of the royalties so he must be earning less than I am from his book uh, from from that promo considerably less because the book took a tumble and that was what made me think number one I am writing books that are good enough to do this I don't tell Meg and of course since that first promo I've had three promos and they've all done really well for me so it's given me more confidence if you want the confidence that I am writing books that are good enough because I think at the time I felt like I wasn't writing books that were good enough and and you know I've got about 160 170 reviews in the US I think now on Don't Tell Meg and of course they're varied but I got you know loads of lovely reviews on on Don't Tell Meg and um, you know so enough people uh, like my writing to give me confidence that it's okay um, so that's what made me think about it, first of all, that, well, hang on, I'm earning more money if I do this. And also, I've got more control over when I put this in for a book bub. Um, I don't know whether Bloodhound do them every six months on a routine, but you know what I'm like. The minute I can submit to a book bub, I'm in there now because they're so lucrative. So that made me think, hmm, maybe this isn't all it's cracked up to be. And then also I've had some conversations and seen some other things with other authors, which I, I, I'm not going to discuss on the diary, just things that, that gave, just gave me pause to reflect whether that was the right thing to do, to aspire to be, not necessarily with, with Bloodhound, but to be with, you know, Joffa Books or, or Bookature, whether I wanted to be with a, um, a, you know, a sort of inverted commas, traditional author. They're not traditional because they pay more than a traditional author does in the royalties. So the royalties are higher. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, I wrote uh, so many lies. I love, I love so many lies. Um, my beta readers like have told me they love so many lies as well. Um, I think it's a great book, and um, so I can't wait to release it. Um, but it wasn't right for Bloodhound um, because it, it has the different sort of time frames, and I don't know whether Bloodhound would go for that. They might, they might go for it. I don't know. I should probably send it off for them before I, I publish it. Give it a try. Um, but, but no, I, I, you know, I wasn't. Um, uh, that that book was fine, but I wasn't going to submit it, and so basically it's got parked. And, and because I'm frankly, um, last year I, I felt like I was making enough money um, to sort of keep up with the books and everything, 
Uh, and certainly with this rapid release now, with more book bubs, I've, I've got enough money in to put great covers and proper edits on all of my books. I, I'm bringing everything up to a level now. Everything has been through a proper editor. Everything will have a proper cover. Uh, because I've generated that amount of, of money, I've generally been sort of okay. I mean, I'm never completely happy, are you? But I've been happy enough with my progress. And of course, doing rapid release is me saying, okay, well, that's still not good enough. I need to make this better. And that's why I'm doing rapid release, of course. But even if I don't make any money at a rapid release, I brought my whole back catalogue up to a level. Everything's brought up to a level. And then I can reconsider where I go after rapid release, depending on whether it's successful, mediocre or not. We'll have to wait and see. So I just wanted to really park the, the, the bloodhound thing and say to you, um, I would still do it. I, I would definitely still do it. I'm still only interested in Joff or Joffa books, Bloodhound Books or Bookature. I'm interested in all of those three because they pay higher royalties. They're much more like a hybrid kind of author. Those are places that I would want to be, but not just yet. For instance, I might revisit it when I've, when I've done rapid release and I've done the three Morecambe Bay trilogy books and, um, yeah, three Morecambe Bay trilogies. You see, I might, I might, after I've done rapid release, I might, offer the three Morgan Bay trilogy books to somewhere like Bloodhound and see if they're interested in the trilogy once I've kind of done my first launch with them. It's all sorts of things I could do um, with, with the books after after that rapid release. I can look at how I package them. So I'm not ruling it out at all, but I am ruling it out for the time being. And I just really wanted to kind of draw a line with Project Bloodhound and let you know that I haven't forgotten it. I haven't procrastinated. There were very good reasons why it was parked. So that was number three. Number four, then, in this list of 15 things, series versus standalones versus trilogies. So I wrote, what was the order of the books I wrote? I did uh, The Secret Bunker first. That was a trilogy. Then I did The Grid. That was a trilogy and always conceived as a trilogy. And then I, I'm trying to remember what I did. I did Don't Tell Meg. That was a trilogy. And then I felt that I needed some standalones. And I wrote four standalone thrillers and a standalone sci-fi. And what I found, there's, there's all sorts of reasons for this, but when I release the standalones, I, I, uh, you'll, again, if you, if you're familiar with the diary, if you listen to a lot of the diary, you'll know that I call it my flop it out strategy, where I just release the things I didn't promote them. Because I think by that time, I think I was probably too busy doing, I think Don't Tell Meg was, was just doing too well for me, really. I didn't have the bandwidth to, to promote them properly. Now, one of the things I keep coming back to with standalones is that Adam Croft, has made his money with standalone books. I was looking at, um, I've forgotten the name of the book, you know, the one, the real huge one that launched Adam, really launched him into our awareness. And it's got something like 1,000 something, um, five star review, uh, five star reviews, or the, the aggregate looks like it's five stars. It's just absolutely astonishing. And that's a standalone book. So when I tell you that I've been unable to sell standalone books, it's not because standalone books don't sell. It's because I haven't worked out how to sell them yet. That's my fault. It's that's on me. It's not on, it's not on the industry or anything like that. It's because I can't figure out how to sell them yet. But I, I'll always bring you back to this. Look at Adam Croft. He sold standalone books. He's extremely good at it. Uh, amazing. So I haven't learned how to sell standalone books. That's the problem. Not writing standalone books, but in terms of you finding fast success, I have no doubt about it that my trilogies are the easiest to sell. So, but I haven't written series yet. I'm, um, the Morgan Bay trilogy is my first series. I'm writing it initially as a trilogy, uh, and those three stories will have an arc. 
but um, I'm going to set it up so I, that could actually be a series um, with the characters. I can kind of dip in and out the characters and write it as a series. So um, I'm moving into series as part of this rapid release. So I, I don't have series experience. But what I can tell you is uh, I believe that unless you're very good at it, like Adam Croft is, that it's harder to sell a standalone book and you have fewer options. But I would always have standalone books alongside trilogies or series because standalone books are good for promos, for giving away for free, for having as lead bait. They're, they're, it's brilliant to have standalone books up your sleeve uh, to lead people into your series. But let, let me tell you what's worked for me. What's worked for me across the board constantly, even before I was getting book bubs, I had my first thousand dollar month when I promoted my trilogy, my, it was Don't Tell Meg, I think, in Free Booksy, where I gave book one away for free. I, I priced book two at something like $1.99 or $2.99. And then I booked, th- priced book three at $2.99 or $3.99. And then I make my money over the, the three, the three books. Now, obviously, book one's got to be good. It's got to pull people into the next book. I, I haven't written series yet, but my instinct, having made it work, is, the the reason I get so many good cross sells that I, you know, when people get book one for free, I make my money on books two and three, and I have done with all of my series, is because they all end on a kind of a cliffhanger. They all end on that ending where you think I got to read the next one, I got to read the next one. So that that's why I think that works. So I don't know whether you'll get that with series. So with series that just conclude, but you get to rejoin the characters in the next book. I don't. To me, that feels like three standalones to me. So I'm I'm wary of series. My personal experience is that trilogies work, but if I were if I were if I were recommending something to you, I would say that the first complement of books to have, this is only on based on my experience, would be a standalone and a trilogy. Because the standalone will give you the ability to put uh, list a book in in book funnel and prolific works and all of those things. You can give chapters away for free. You can give the book away for free in exchange for an email, and you're not degrading, downgrading your trilogy, your money making series. But when you've got a trilogy, you can put book one for free in a book bub or a free booksy or whatever promo you're using, and that then will force or generate sales on your other books. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Now, my feeling with series is that it wouldn't work quite so well, but we'll, we'll find out that with the, um, more Bay trilogy. It's why I'm writing it as a series of three initially. Um, but I'm setting it up so that I could write a series. And the other thing is, is that with now you see here, the book I've co-written with Adam Nichols, that also could be a series where you keep coming back to the characters. And what I've done in uh, particularly now you see her, um, so Left for Dead, which is the first Walker Bay trilogy book, uh, Left for Dead, um, is self-contained and I will pick characters out of that book and carry them forwards into the series. Whereas with Now You See Her, there are several very strong elements in that book where you want to know what happens next to the characters. So I've, I've written two di- or set up two different kind of series there and I'll, I'll just experiment. I'll just see which goes better. This is why I say to you, what I'm telling you now is where I am at the moment in a year's time when I've got different experience, I might change my mind, but I do feel, and I think this will be consistent. I do feel that trilogies work extremely well, uh, particularly on BookBub. And those are trilogies that have 
um, cliffhanger endings. And, you know, some people don't cl- like cliffhanger endings. And my view is, well, you know, don't read my books if you don't like cliffhanger endings. It's just to me like the end of a series on, on telly. Um, I, I don't get that many complaints about it. And in fairness to people who don't like cliffhanger endings, uh, I always write at the bottom of my blurb, this book has a cliffhanger ending. So I, I you know, I can't be fairer than that, can I? But I, think cliffhanger endings work personally they drive people into the next book and that's my experience so um yeah what what would i recommend to you if you were saying to me paul what what should i write first of all i would say well based upon my experience write a standalone then a trilogy that's your first compliment of books that's what i would say other people will say different but that's my experience number five in this list this is going to go on for quite some time actually i should have kept it to 10 maybe number five is entering competitions I spent a lot of money and did a load of competitions when I started writing with The Secret Bunker and The Grid. And I I got several, what do they call them? Not recommendations. Oh, something mentions. Honourable mentions. I got several honourable mentions. Um, Never never came first. uh, But I think honourable mentions and I think a silver medal, maybe in the Wishing Shelf Awards. So, um, and some lovely feedback. Uh, Wishing Shelf Awards were my best experience, incidentally. If you want to take part in a competition, and get great feedback uh, going for the Wishing Shelf Awards. That that would be my my recommendation because um, th- th- they've got a lovely nurturing element, the Wishing Shelf Awards as well. And you also get uh, lovely bit feedback from real readers. So I, I actually feel that rather than just sending a book off, paying some money and waiting to see whether you've won or lost, the Wishing Shelf Awards have a qualitative element to them in that you get sort of, you get detailed feedback. It actually helps you as a writer. And also you may... Uh, get an award, a gold or a silver. I think I think I got a silver in the Wishing Shelf Awards, um, something like that. So those are the ones I would recommend if you do do competitions. But I went in for loads of competitions and I paid all the fees. I went in for writing, writing, writers' digest, is it competitions? Loads of those. And um, they had good prizes on them. And I got sort of honourable mentions and some of them give you feedback. But, you know, you know, I didn't I didn't get anywhere with them. I wasted a lot of money. And frankly, not a lot of money, but I wasted we say 500 pounds probably if I put a number on it over the course of my career maybe 500 pounds on competitions certainly no more than that just just to give you a ballpark figure on what I've spent on competitions um, and and obviously I entered them all in small amounts so it was 20 dollars here 25 pound there so all those amounts accrued over a period of time but did I ever get any value from it no only the wishing shelf awards um, those those that's my conclusion if, if you're going to take part in competitions take part in that one um, they, they're really well run very transparent. Um, I know that the um, Alliance of Independent Authors did a really great article on competitions and which ones are frankly just taking your money and which ones are worth doing. And the Wishing Shelf Awards came up, you know, very clearly as a really great set of awards to to take part in. So I'm going to big up the Wishing Shelf Awards, um, but I'm going to say to you otherwise, there's not really. It, again, it's a vanity metric, isn't it? It's a vanity metric. Of course, of course, I would love to win a competition. Of course, if I won a competition or I got a gold medal for a competition or something like that, of course, I would plaster it all over my blog and everything like that. Of course, I would. But is it a good use of time? Take you back to the 80-20 rule. I don't feel it was a good use of time. I don't feel it was a good use of money. I'd be better off spending that money on covers and edits. Would I go in for competitions again? Yeah, if I saw the right one, if I thought I had the right book. Do I think it's a good ongoing strategy? 
No, I'd just pick and choose if I were you. Just just be very selective about the competitions you do. Now, my strategy was to go in for every competition that I could go in for when I started. Um, and, you know, I got some feedback. And actually, you know, it did give me some validation uh, getting these honourable mentions and getting the feedback. It just it made me in the early days just feel, well, I'm not writing rubbish, uh, you know, compared with other people in my genre. I'm doing OK. Um, so it was good for that. But would I use it as a strategy now? No. Uh, would I still go in for a competition? Yes, I would, um, if I spotted the right one. But it would have to be the right one. But it, it's not something that I do as a proactive part of my strategy. I, if I happened to spot one and thought, well, that's got my name on it, I'll go in for that, I would still do it. But it's, it was part of my strategy, and it isn't anymore. Number six in this list is writing non-fiction books. Now, I've written a lot of non-fiction books. Uh, they're not all published at the moment, but let me tell you the lessons I learned from doing that. So when I started writing fiction, I realised pretty quickly that it was going to be easier for me to write non-fiction and sell non-fiction because I realised that when you are a fiction author, you are an unknown author at the bottom of a very deep genre. So I'm a thriller author. No one knows who the heck I am. And so no one's going to look for Paul Teague when they go onto Amazon. They're going to look for thriller, psychological thriller. So I better keywording my genre, not my name. Now, what you hope as an author is that at some point you will become so well known and have so many fans that they look for you by name, like you would for J.K. Rowling or for Stephen King. You, you wouldn't look for Stephen King in horror. You'd look for Stephen King. Um, so you, so your name then becomes the keyword. You become the brand. And that's kind of what our aspiration should be as authors. I want people to look for Paul Teague. I don't want them to find me accidentally when they're searching in their genre. But in nonfiction, it's all about the keywords. It's all about I put the word MailChimp in and a load of books come up and my books there. It doesn't matter who I am in terms of being an author. It's all about the keywords and matching the keywords to what people are looking for. So I wrote, uh, oh, fuck, I can't remember how many books I wrote one on. Where I, I basically, because I was doing a lot of um, tutoring, a lot of corporate work at that time, I pretty well picked out the topics that I was teaching all the time. And I sold a lot of those books to people that I was actually working with. So I don't regret doing this at all. But I, I did one on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, webinars, whew, email marketing, WordPress. There's something else in there that I've forgotten. Something else. And I, I, I very quickly wrote 20, 25,000 word books, which was just a brain dump as far as I concerned. I knew all this stuff. Uh, I got some covers made. I got them made on what was what's the cover thing? 99 designs. I got my covers made on 99 designs. I got a template that I just colorized for each title and started selling those books. And I know a lot of people that I taught uh, bought them. So it had a, had a really natural kind of way to onboard those books and sell them. But the problem with the topics that I do is that they date very quickly. So all those books that are packed full of brilliant information, they date very quickly. And it only takes LinkedIn to change its interface. And all of a sudden, all that lovely information in the book is obsolete because it doesn't look like it does anymore. So um, bit, bit by bit, I've taken those books offline. And then I, had, I did a last minute revamp with MailChimp and WordPress. So I've managed to squeeze some more sales out of those. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, nonfiction sells really easy. And, and sometimes I wonder, here I am thrashing my fiction all the time. I do sometimes wonder whether I should take a year off fiction, just market my fiction and write no new fiction, just have a break, a panic cleanse, and just spend a year writing some nonfiction. Now, if I do, and because I can sell nonfiction, I make money out of nonfiction. Uh, face, my Facebook book was at one time my best-selling book uh, in my early days of writing. It just sold itself because it was just keywords. And I think I write, I think I write good 
non-fiction in the way that I've got lots of doubts about my fiction. I'm, I'm torn with angst about my fiction all the time. I don't feel that way with non-fiction. I know that what I'm writing is great information. I know it because I teach people. I know what their pain points are and their frustrations are. I know it because I teach people all the time and they tell me this. So I know my books are, you know, good. I know they're good um, because I teach that stuff all the time and I'm, I'm sure of my topic. So I do wonder whether I should just take a year out and come up with a non-fiction series and do that for a year because they're also much easier to sell on Amazon ads. Now, the lesson I've learned, though, and why I've changed my mind about the strategies, those books work for me. Uh, I made sales on them. They fitted my corporate work extremely well. It was great to be able to go in to say to people, well, look, you've had this day's training. There's a book if you want to buy it. Buy my book. It worked really well. Um, but the problem with the topics I was doing is that they weren't evergreen, is that they they kept changing. And so the books kept needing updating. Now, when I wrote those books originally, they were written in Word. And, and to be honest with you, if I'd written them in vellum in a way, because they all have illustrations as well, which makes them a slightly different beast to write and process. If I'd done those in vellum from the get-go, I might, and it was easier for me to update them, then I, I might feel differently. But because they were in Word and it was such a pain to do the editing, I've just kind of dumped them because I'm so busy with writing my fiction at the moment. Um, but I, I would like to come back to nonfiction. But what I need to come up with, with nonfiction, and I just need to give it some thought, really, but I need to come up with a series that's evergreen, that isn't going to change every five minutes. Um, you know, a, a branded series of nonfiction books that I can write, uh, sharing my kind of knowledge, but that isn't going to get dated every time Facebook updates. Uh, you're thinking, oh, blimey, that book's out of date now. So I, I just got to find that topic, really. And when I find that topic, I'll probably commit to a, you know, a series of seven books. And, um, and to be honest with you, it'll be a lot easier doing Amazon, uh, ads marketing and things like that. Because in the way that, um, BookBub, for instance, I don't think he's, I would never promote a nonfiction book on BookBub, not unless it was something very general. A very sort of general how-to book. So, um, what's that? Is it, is it Mark Manson, the how not to give an F you, you know, about anything? Do you know the one I mean? I'm not describing it very well, but I don't want to say the word F blank blank K. How not to give a F blank 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 K about anything. Something like that. It's a Mark Manson book, something like that. Um, it's very popular. So something like that is actually a really good book for everybody. Everybody could read that book. Um, because it resonates with lifestyle choices and things like that. Um, I, I, you know, actually, one thing I could, something I'm very interested in that I, that I, I might start writing books on, for instance, is, is the work I'm doing around Parkrun. I was inspired by a book called, it's just over here, hang on, let me lean over and get it. It's called Younger Next Year. And the philosophy of that book is when you're in your 50s, in between the years 50 to 60, that you can, if you exercise and, and, um, regularly, you can reverse the changes that are happening to your body. So you can actually stop uh, elderly decline and this is part of the reason why I'm doing part run and what I'm doing at the moment and, and I'm getting very interested in that and obviously I'm losing weight and getting fitter and running faster and I, I would be very interested in writing for instance a series of of shorter non-fiction books around that so I just really need to find my evergreen topic I think and 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 you know and, and then I'll be off and I have to say to you that because I, I'll have written so much fiction up to my 55th birthday I am really thinking about what comes after that because I have got a lot of books and a lot of marketing, marketing packages there. And it would really suit me to just concentrate on marketing my fiction for a year, not writing any of it, just 
marketing it uh, because of course I've got lots of units there and then maybe just say okay for next year I'm going to write non-fiction books that's all I'm writing non-fiction I'm going to build a non-fiction brand and there might be videos and training around that as well and then and then I'll come back to fiction again having been refreshed you know had a year off got a load of new ideas and experiences so you know I'll, I'll tell you that now I that is quite attractive to me but I've got to come up with the topic so bottom line is if you do non-fiction Try and make it an evergreen topic. Don't get caught with something that constantly needs updating because it's a pain in the butt. But let me tell you, non-fiction is a lot easier to sell than fiction. End of story, because it's just keywords. It's just SEO, search engine optimization principles. Number seven on my list of 15 things might prove controversial, and it's that marketing is more important than the books. Now, let me qualify this because I do need to qualify it. You can't put rubbish out there and just market it well. But I always say to people when I'm teaching about websites, I think most people's disappointment when they start a business online is that they put all this effort into creating a website and they believe that when the website has been launched, they're going to be a millionaire by the end of the week. And the first disappointment of having a website is that that doesn't happen. And what you soon learn is that actually what determines whether your website is successful or not, or one of the things that determines that, is how much traffic, how many visitors you get on your website. Because if you don't get any visitors, then you're not going to stand any chance whatsoever of making any sales or whatever it is, is the purpose of your website. And so it is with books, that if you write the greatest book on earth, then it really is a stunning literary novel. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if no one can find it. It could be the best novel on earth, but if it's sat in your garage, 2,000 copies of it sat in your garage, it really doesn't matter. So I believe that you need to write a good book, but it doesn't have to be a great book. It does have to be a good book though, because if you don't write a good book, people won't come back and buy future books. But I don't think it has to be an excellent book. I think that you reach a certain point with the book. It has to have a great cover. I think it has to be edited. Uh, it has to be uh, literate. It has to be a good story. But it doesn't, not every book that you write has to be a bestseller. It doesn't have to be a Stephen King, but it does have to be a good book. It's, it certainly has to reach certain quality thresholds. But after that point, given that it is a reasonable book, a reasonable story with a reasonable cover, I think at that point, marketing takes over as the most important factor. Because if you can't market your good or great book, forget it. It's just going to sit there gathering dust on the shelves. So I know that's controversial, but that is my feeling about this. And, and that's shown to me by the fact that uh, when I launched The Secret Bunker, same book in 2014, I hadn't got a clue how to sell it. So I sold a handful of books. And then in 2019, I've managed to get myself a book bub. I've probably sold more books in a month than I ever did in the, the years previously. And what changed? Well, the book didn't change. The cover didn't change. What changed was the marketing. So I do qualify that by saying you can't put junk out. I think, I think that actually with good marketing, you could put junk out once. And then people would learn the lesson and you wouldn't get to do it again. Um, so I, I even think that with good marketing, you could sell junk. I just don't think that you could repeat it. That would be the problem. And that's why you need to hit a certain quality threshold. But if you can't market at all, if you do no marketing, it doesn't matter how good the book is. No one's ever going to find it and you'll be the only one who ever knows about it. 
Number eight on the list. Now, uh, you'll, you might find this one strange coming from me because if you've listened to these diaries for a long, long time, you'll know that I was always a pantser at heart. Now, if you're new to this writing, like a pantser is somebody who writes a book by the seat of their pants. They haven't really got a clue where it's going. And that's pretty well what I did. I, I don't think I've ever written a book that I completely pants. I just started writing and saw where it led. Even if it was in my head, I always knew what the trajectory was of, of the story. But I might not have planned it down in, into great detail. And also, even though I didn't have an overall plan for the book, I always knew what the beginning, middle and end was. And even though I didn't have that chapter by chapter, that blow by blow plan, before I wrote every day, I always wrote notes about what that day's writing would include. And of course, it fitted into the overall trajectory. So I've probably never been a 100% pantser. I've always been uh, maybe a lighter planner in the past. But the last book that I've written, which is Now You See Her, and also the three books that I wrote for John and James, the military sci-fi books at the beginning of the year, because I was collaborating with those books, I felt a, um, a certain commitment and obligation to be able to tell my collaborators what the story was going to be before I started writing it. Because if they hated it, if they said, no, that's just completely you know, off the beaten track. We don't want you to write that story. That's nothing to do with our universe or our style. I needed to know that as soon as possible. Couldn't write 150,000 words for John and James and then say, oh no, sorry, whoopsie, it's the wrong thing. Um, same with Adam. I needed to let him know what I was writing so he could add his notes, add his flavour to those books. So those books, this year in 2019, I've been more planned than I ever have been before. And in actual fact, the, the last book that I've completed, now you see her, is the most I've ever planned a book. And I've got to tell you, I loved it. And I'm going to do the next books like that. So with that book, I've always had character profiles and locations. So locations and character profiles have always been important to me. I've always cast my books. I think I've pretty well done that uh, since The Grid, since the second trilogy that I wrote. Um, so I've refined my techniques. But with this one, I actually went through, um, there were 45 chapters. I went through every single chapter and wrote the outline for the chapter. Now, normally I would have written that outline the day before I actually wrote. Whereas this time I sat down, I forced the story out myself. And I can tell you that over 45 chapters, I have pretty well stuck to that outline. I haven't really diverted. So one last bit at the end where I thought, hmm, actually he can't be there. He needs to be here. It was only a location change. But the, the plot has pretty well stuck to, stuck true to, to what I jotted down. So what I got to tell you at the moment is, and again, all this is subject to change, but I think I have learned that it is better for me to plan. And in actual fact, you know, planning does not have to be, I'd heard stories of people writing 10,000 words before they even wrote their book. I ain't going to do that. You know, I really, I'm not going to do that ever. I can't see me ever, ever doing that, you know, creating these massive worlds and things like that, because um, I do like that process of discovery while I'm writing. I, I don't like to have everything done. And my view is if you're writing 10,000, 20,000 words before you even start writing the book, you've, you've half written the book by that stage. So that's just my personal opinion. I've no need to do that, but um, I am going to start to, to plan things better. So in future, I am going to write notes beforehand about every chapter. So I know what I'm writing every day. I am going to continue to do the, the location details and I am going to continue to cast the books. And, and to me, that's the right amount of planning. I know every day what I'm writing. I know who the characters are. I can visualize them, but it's not so overplanned that it bores me that I kind of know what's happening before I even write. Um, and that, that's kind of the experience I have when I'm writing nonfiction. I don't actually with nonfiction, it's like a brain dump. 
I know exactly, I know all this information and I've got to get it on the page in some coherent fashion. So I don't massively enjoy writing nonfiction, even though I think I've got a lot of great stuff to share in my nonfiction book. I don't really enjoy the process of it because all I'm doing is getting something out of my head onto the page. I don't really enjoy that process. Whereas when I'm writing fiction, I have got this loose plan. I know exactly where the plot's going, but I've constantly got that process of discovery and creativity while I'm writing. And I I do want to preserve that. It's important for me to do that. Otherwise, I think I would lose interest in what I'm writing if there wasn't some element of discovery in there. So moving on from number eight to number nine, collaborations. That's something I've changed my mind about. Um, I'm still a bit funny about collaborations. It's just, and, and to be honest with you, we're not far enough into collaborations yet for me I might still change my mind on collaborations. I really need to kind of see how they work out on a week by week, month by month basis. But I have decided to move out my comfort zone and try collaborations this year. And that's mainly because the conversation came up with two interviewees. I was interviewing John Evans. I was interviewing Adam. We started chatting. I write in both their genres and, and I know them. I've met them and it just came up for discussion. And in the end, I just thought, well, why the hell not really? Let's just try it. I haven't, I'm nervous. There's a lot of things I'm nervous about with collaborations. Um, one is the money and there are ways to solve this, but I, I, you know, if you, if I ever fall out with you, it's going to be because you're, you're messing around with me with, with money. Um, I, that you owe me money or you're not telling me what I'm owed or you're slow to pay me money that you owe me. Um, I'm not very good waiting for money. I expect us all to agree the money. Um, and I, you know, I ask people to do as I do. So, you know, I pay fast. I don't hang around with the cash. Um, and, and that's the kind, that's what I expect from people. I expect to be paid at the agreed time. So I am worried about the money. Um, only time will tell with that, to be honest with you. It is bound by contract. But, you know, there's a different thing between having a contract and sort of, you know, saying you agree it between yourselves. And if somebody then stops observing the detail of that contract, you've then got to brace yourself for the pain in the butt kind of, right, OK, I'm going to have to buckle down and sort this out legally. And, and so, you know, the jury's out on that because we have, we're not far enough into the collaborations yet. But on the positive side of the collaborations, um, what I have enjoyed is, you know, is working with people, is getting other people's feedbacks. I've enjoyed writing in John and James's world. That was fun. I enjoyed taking one of their characters that I liked and, and moving him into my world. That was great fun. And, and obviously what I get from it is I get to ride on the coattails of people who are doing very well in their genre. John and James are doing very well in military sci-fi. Adam is doing very well in psychological thrillers. And why I'm doing is I hope it will give me a jump start to bring my other works, um, you know, into the field of vision of other readers. So there's, there's plenty in it for me. And, um, of course they may feel they, they may also feel that I haven't honored my part of the collaboration, you know, from, from their point of view. Now, um, hopefully I have, um, because everything's been delivered to time and they've been allowed to uh, comment on the stories before I wrote them. Now, of course, they might not have got the story that they were expecting, but they, they, they had, I think, at least read or seen enough of my work or enough of the reviews to know that hopefully they weren't going to get kind of a, you know, a bowl full of, of rubbish, uh, that it was going to be a, de- a reason, a reasonable book at least. Um, so they'd have to tell you about that side of things. But in terms of the, just the, the concept of collaborating, I've decided to give it a go. I'll let you know whether I'm going to do it again. Just keep listening to the, to the diaries. 
uh, if I make a lot of money, I'll be doing it again. You know, if this if this makes me a lot of sales and I get a lot of money off it, I will be doing it again. I can tell you that because, um, I, I, as you know, I'm all about um, generating the income. I am nervous, though, when when I'm signing contracts that go for seven years and then you renew them. I'm always very nervous of contracts like that because I always think, well, people don't stay married that long. Um, you know, they get out of that contract, which is supposed to be one of the most important contracts in our lives and people will still be out, wiggle out of that contract within seven years. So yeah, I'm, I'm always a little bit nervous, but let's wait and see. What, what you don't want is you want the collaboration to work well and you don't want to have to keep referring to the contract. You just want people to do the thing that we've all kind of agreed that you'll do. So time will tell with that, but at least I've, I've put my money where my mouth is. I've tried two collaborations in my two fiction genres. Keep listening to the diary to find out how that goes and how I feel about it in six months at a year's time. Number 10 on the list is writing to market. When I was going through my frustrated stage, I read Chris Fox's books and I highly recommend these to you. Chris Fox has written a load of nonfiction books and I, I think you kind of got to buy the lot and read them and consume them. He's producing some great content. But the most compelling of those was writing to market, was knowing what your genre tropes are and writing a book to your reader's expectations. And, it, it, you know, it works. All the evidence is it works. This is what the 20 Books guys do. This is what Chris Fox does. This is what most successful writers will tell you that they're doing. And a lot of authors always feel that they've got that non-fiction, literary, uh, you know, giant of a book inside of them. And then they find out that it has no readers because it, it's not really what anybody wants. Whereas writing to market, you're writing what your readers want. You're writing to your genre tropes. Your cover reflects your genre tropes. Um, so I've made a real effort this year to write to market. So again, this is reflected in the collaborations with John and James's books. Military sci-fi is a big science fiction genre uh, and it has lots of tropes. Uh, fortunately, it's what Chris Fox uh, right. So I went through his book. I got all the tropes and my books for John and James, you know, completely reflect the military sci-fi tropes. And then with the psychological thrillers, I have now, I found a lovely, uh, something in a magazine. I think it was, I, I scanned it and kept it. It was lovely. Um, an item about all the tropes for psychological thrillers. And it, it talks about things like threats to family life and uh, secrets in, that people have, dark secrets. Um, just, it just gives the kind of the things that a psychological thriller needs. And I always look at that now when I'm writing my psychological thriller. So I'm writing to market. Um, so I, I believe that my, my, my books are, are written to market. I mean, I have to say, I think, I think my thrillers, my psychological thrillers probably always have been probably less so with my sci-fi. There are sci-fi books, um, and they have some of the tropes in them, but they, it's probably fair to say they weren't written to market. Um, yeah, they, they, they weren't written to market because I didn't know what that meant in those days. I don't think they're a million miles away from what they should be, but they weren't specifically written to market. Again, it's too early for me to say at the time of recording this, how writing to market is going to work for me, how I'll fare from that. But I, I feel that you can't really go wrong writing to market. I think you can go wrong if you just ignore all the genre tropes. You can't really go wrong writing to market. I think the question is, is how successfully have I done that and how well will that play out? Moving on to number 11 then, and this is the ideal length of a book to write. So when I started writing books, The Secret Bunker 
um, I wrote to 50,000 words. And the only reason that was 50,000 words, and, I, and they, the books got longer, was because I'd never written a book before. And 50,000 words seemed like a really long book. So Secret Bunker was, I think it was 50. And I think we were getting up to about 80 by the time we got to book three. And I got into my flow by then. But for my first book, 50,000 just seemed like a huge amount to write. And then obviously, as you exercise your writing muscles, you get far better at it. And And now I don't really care what I write. But however, I believe that in terms of choosing a book length, you need to think commercially about this. Now, I'm, I'm quite surprised. I know that if you write sort of Tolkien kind of fantasy, the genre expectation there is that the books will be thick. And, and so that's fine. So if the genre expectation is that your books are going to be 150,000 words, that's absolutely fine. Uh, no, no problem with that at all. But my, my feeling is having written 50,000 word books, having written 75,000 word books and having written 90,000 word books, my feeling at the moment, at the time I record this, so remember, I've changed my mind and I and I reserve the right to change my mind again. But my feeling at the moment is that a 75,000 word book is the sweet spot. Why is it the sweet spot? Well, it's long enough. So with a 50,000 word book, although that does count officially as a novel, it's not a long novel. It's not a substantial novel. Now, I've also written at 90,000 words, and obviously that takes longer to write. But having now written a couple of books at 75,000 words, I really um, feel, and this is, this is a gut feeling as much as anything, that the book is long enough. It needs to be long enough if you're in KDP Select to, to get a decent number of reads from it. If you make it too short, you're not going to earn enough money from those reads. So it needs to be a decent length to get the reads. But also, you need to consider pricing and speed of writing. So I could write a 75,000 word book, obviously faster than I can a 90,000 word book and slower than I can a 50,000 word book. But I'm tipped over the edge towards 75 because 75 gives me better reads. I can price it higher more confidently. So at 75,000 words, you could easily price at 399 or 499. It's a good substantial read at 75,000 words. And I can get that book out quicker than a 90,000 word. So it feels substantial like a 90,000 worder, but I can write it faster and I can price it the same price as a 90,000 worder. So my feeling is, is that there are diminishing returns on a long book. Now, remember, this is overridden by the fact that if your genre expectation is 150,000 words, that's absolutely right. Fine. You know, stick to your genre expectation. But where your genre expectation isn't that, I just feel it's a combination of writing speed, pricing and reads, the reads that you get. And at the moment, my feeling is that 75,000 words is the sweet spot. I can write a 75,000 word book over 15 writing days. Um, so I could write, if I were writing full time, I could write a 75,000 word book every three weeks. And then I could sort of edit that book and be planning the next one. So 75,000 words is sustainable. So long as you've got an editor, uh, so long as you've got a pipeline going, um, you know, you couldn't sort of write it and have it released in within the next week. You'd have to have a pipeline of the books going so that they could be feeding through and editing all the time. But you could sustain a 28 day release cycle uh, on a 15,000, a 15 day to write book, 75,000 words. So at the moment, that is my sweet spot. And that is the length I'm going to be writing books to. Now, um, there's been a recent exception with that. Now you see her 
clearly is being written to 50,000 words. It's being written to 50,000 words because I wrote some standalones to 50,000 words and it needs to match the style of those books and I need to get it out fast. So I'm writing that at 50,000, but my full length book length now for trilogies and series is going to be 75,000 words until I discover or learn otherwise. So that one is subject to change, but that's where I am at the moment. Number 12 on this list of 15 things is the best software to use. And this really is writing software. When I started writing The Secret Bunker, I just started writing it in Word. I soon found out with Word that it's a pig to, to format. It's got all sorts of horrible code in the background. And so the way I used to format my books in my early writing career is I used to upload it to the Kindle, the Amazon dashboard. I could then download the HTML because I understand HTML. I would tidy up the HTML and that's how I'd make my books look really nice. And I tried Calibre. Oh, I tried every single cheap software that there is and they were never quite right. I tried um, in the early days when I was trying to list on Kobo, I tried to upload directly to Kobo. I used to have all sorts of formatting problems with that. So I when I was wide, I listed my books on Kobo through Draft the Digital because I always had formatting problems on Kobo when I was uploading Word files. I just couldn't get it right. And I got to the stage where I thought I, my time is better spent writing books, not messing around with formatting. So yeah, I've had a lot of frustrations with this. And then I, I kind of went, um, I found Scriven. Everybody was talking about Scrivener. So um, actually, I tell a lie. I didn't start with Word. I started in Google Drive. I went Google Drive. Then I had to put it into Word to format it for paperback. So actually, Google Drive is what I use. I do like Google Drive. And in actual fact, I would still write in Google Drive if, um, you know, that's the only option I had. If I had, if I wasn't able to get access to software, I, I still actually like Google Drive. Um, but actually, I write in Scrivener now. And I have done for ages. And Scrivener is what I love to write in. I plan in Novel Factory. I still love Novel Factory. I don't like the online version of it. I like the down, the old fashioned downloaded version, which they're bound to stop supporting at some point. But unfortunately, that's the one I like. So I'm going to have a real problem when they stop supporting the download desktop version of it. But, um, I just, I don't know. I just not quite, I don't quite get on with cloud stuff, writing into cloud stuff. It doesn't work for me because the other one I, I tried is, um, is it Story Shop? And, the guys keep bigging it up on the podcast. It's it's not the self-publishing podcast, but you know which one I mean with Johnny Dave and uh, Sean. They keep bigging it up and sounding like it's the best thing since sliced bread. And I think, well, I don't really get on very well with this. I don't like it. So I don't like Story Shop either. I have bought it. I paid for it for a year. And I just, I just can't get into it. Um, so my favorite combination at this moment in time is to write in Scrivener. Uh, I then have to export the Scrivener file into a Word document to get it edited. Then I, I make the sort of, I bring the Word document back into Scrivener to make the corrections. I export from Scrivener and then turn it into Vellum. And I think Vellum is the big game changer for me. Um, if I think if you, if you plan to write at least three books, just buy Vellum outright. Just, just be done with it. The amount of pain and time you will save. You might just as well buy the software, I think, because um, in the latter stages of my career, when I was earning more money, I paid somebody to format. I don't regret that money at all. Um, it was much easier getting somebody to format it. And they came back looking beautiful. They were great. Um, but actually, just Vellum makes it so easy. It's a remarkable piece of software. Um, unfortunately, it's it defaults to MacBooks. You have to be, have a, a Mac or an Apple PC, Apple PC, Apple device to use it. But 
you can use it with Mac in Cloud, which is a virtual software which allows you to basically simulate a Mac on your PC. If you go to paultig.com, you'll see a page and a video, a how-to video on how to do that. But don't ask me for support, all right? You'll have to figure it out yourself, but um, don't ask me for support. But the video and the explanation is there if you could work it out from there. Um, but you can, um, yeah, use Mac in Cloud and Vellum. So, I'm not even going to beat around the bush with this. I'm just going to say to you, if you're serious about writing and you get to write more than one book, just buy Vellum and use Mac in Cloud. And when you use Mac in Cloud, just pay uh, pay as you go, $30 a time. That's the cheapest way. And it, it just goes on forever, that $30. You'd be able to use it for ages. Um, that's the cheapest way of doing it. But the time and the hassle that it will save you and the ability for you to just go into a book and make a change or, you know, change the list, add your latest book into the books by this author section. It's so easy. It, think of it not as a cost, but as a time saver. Your time is best spent writing and marketing books. That's what makes the money. It's not best spent messing around formatting files. That's a waste of your time. It's a clerical job. So just buy the software that does the job. And that is Vellum. I'm not even going to beat around the bush with that. It's Vellum. So yeah, I'm coming out very strong on Vellum. I can't imagine anybody is going to come up with a software that's better than that. So long as they keep innovating with it, so long as they keep developing it and keep it up to date, Vellum is very definitely the software for me. Number 13, I want to talk to you about cover strategies, book cover strategies. When I got my first books done, I got uh, I did it properly. I paid a lot of money, £500 per cover, something like that. And I got the ebook versions done and I got the paperback versions done. And when I got the paperback versions done, I had to tell the cover designer what the spine size was. And these things were all done very accurately. And let me tell you now, spine sizes are a pain in the butt. Um, when you change the spine size on an existing book, because maybe you've re-edited it or you've stuck some extra pages in it, um, you know, for instance, author notes or something like that. It's just such a pain. It really is. Uh, I ain't messing around with covers. <laughs> I really do. And, you know, bearing in mind, I got I got reasonable skills, not not design skills, but reasonable manipulation skills, uh, certainly on Canva and on Photoshop too. Normally I can figure this stuff out, but I really ain't doing covers. I, I really do. So my cover strategy now, uh, and again, I, I found this out through experiences. I don't sell many paperbacks. Um, I don't. Um, and you may have a author career where you do sell a lot of paperbacks, but I don't. So all I do now, I, I, I pay to get a lovely ebook cover done. And what I do is I use Amazon's cover creator and I just use a hex, um, hexadecimal color picker. If you just do a search for that in Google, you'll, you'll find an online one. And basically what you do is you upload your book cover. You pick the main color out of it, whatever that is, a red or a blue, it, it tells you what the hexadecimal code is. A hexadecimal code is just um, a six number. Is it numbers? It's numbers and letters, actually. No, a six number and digit um, code, which creates a color. And you go back into Amazon, and when it tell, asks you what um, cover you want for the spine in the back, you just tell it that six digit and letter number, and it matches it. You put your photo in there. There's the space for your barcode. You put your author blurb in there and off you go. And they look perfectly all right. They look really nice on my shelf. And to me, that's a really good balance between time and expense and the number of paperbacks that I sell. I want to make paperbacks available. Vellum helps me to format my books really easily for paperbacks. So again, that's another vote for Vellum. But in terms of the covers, there's not a lot of point 
me spending a lot of money on my covers because I don't I don't um, sell a lot of paperbacks. That's the truth of it. I do with the Secret Bunker. They've got the proper covers on, so I, you know I paid for those. That's all fine. I do put the proper covers on those because the Secret Bunker buys them ninety at a time and puts them on the shelves. But uh, otherwise, I just don't feel that it's an expense worth paying. The other thing is, of course, is that when you advertise on Amazon, you only ever see that front bit of cover. So in many respects, unless you're selling in bookshops or people are actually picking up and handling your paperback, it's not an awful lot of point spending a lot of money on that design because it doesn't really matter. It only matters if people are picking it up, if you're doing author talks, um, if you've got some way of selling the paperbacks where people actually have that lovely paperback experience where they're looking all around the book. If not, in my opinion, you might as well just send them a basic paperback. It's much more cost effective um, and it's much more time effective. So that's what I'm now doing with my covers. I might change my mind with that. If there's ever a time when I do talks in libraries or something like that, I'm, I'm sure I will. But at the moment, that's my cover strategy. Number 14 then on the list. We're nearly at the end now. I'm quite surprised at how long this has turned out to be, actually. Uh, I should have kept it at 10, I think. But um, number 14 on this list, things I've changed my mind about, is is my launch technique. And now, of course, I'm trying rapid release, which seems the best example of best practice to me. It's what most of the successful people are doing. So when I first launched a book, I hadn't got a clue how to launch a book. My My launch technique when I first started writing was publish book on Amazon, cross fingers, hope for the best. That was it. And I think that's what most authors think. And you sell a couple, a couple of people find it and off you go. Um, and in the early days, I was selling more through the secret bunker. The fact that they they bought um, the first big order I got in the very early days of my writing was the secret bunker bought 30 books of book one, 30 books of book two, 30 copies of book three. Um, so I, I made those 90 sales and they were, they were quite sort of lucrative for me. So I think that was my biggest um, sale. It was probably my, my biggest sale at that time. And I'm very grateful to them. They continue to buy those books. Um, but you know, it's a fabulous relationship that I've got with the secret bunker. They sell them in the, in the bookshop and that's fabulous. But that was my launch technique. And then I learned, and I've alluded to this earlier, that you, you, you soon learn that just writing a book and leaving it there doesn't sell the book. You've got to learn how to market. And so I listened to podcasts and improved my technique. I learned about email marketing lists and I learned about Facebook ads and Amazon ads and BookBub ads and all of these things that you could do to sell books. And you know, if you've listened to these diaries, I've tried them. I've tried this. I've tried to get a BookBub. I had my first thousand dollar month with free booksy that gave my first thousand dollar month. And then I was lucky enough to get a book bub. And now I've got book bubs and all my trilogies and these book bubs are making me, um, you know, good money. So I'm earning above what the average traditional author earns well above that. Um, so, you know, I've had some success, uh, very mediocre success, but I've managed to go, if you listen to the early days of this diary from virtually no income, very, very low income, to earning more than a traditional author does. Um, and, and hopefully, I think I should at least sustain that this year. We'll have to find out what rapid release does to hopefully it will improve it because uh, that's my aim, obviously, to always be improving the income. So in terms of launch techniques, then I never really had a launch technique. When I did my standalone thrillers, my launch technique, as I used to laugh, was flop it out, just release the thing. I hope for the best. So I, I, but I found out I had to get serious about this, just letting it flop out and not do anything. I was writing these books. So I know I can write the books. I can get the books out fast. I can write. I've got plenty of ideas in me, but I got to a stage where I got all these books and many of them weren't selling. And that I, you can't do that. You've got to master the marketing. You've got to get that bit right. 
Um, otherwise, I'm just going to have a whole load of books gathering dust and making no sales, and that's not acceptable to me. I want to be writing books regularly. I've got plenty of ideas. I don't have a trouble with that bit. But there's no point doing that if I don't sell the blasted things and I can't make a reasonable and consistent living from it. And that's why I've turned as a launch technique to rapid release. And I've seen enough people, This it, it feeds into what Chris Fox does. I mentioned he's writing to market before, but um, you know, Chris Fox will talk to you about rapid releasing and release strategies as well. Um, and obviously Craig Martell's got a great book about rapid release strategies too. And um, I think the first time I really got a bee in my bonnet about it was finding out how successful Adam Nichols had been from and I don't mean this rudely, but from being like me, a, a mediocre author, making a little bit of money, um, more than many authors are making, but just not enough, not enough to live on, to going to a £100,000 year. That was just absolutely exceptional. He did it with the same books that he'd had previously. There's nothing new in the books. They've been edited. They've got new covers. But it was the same stuff that he'd done previously. Nothing remarkable had changed there. What had changed was the launch strategy and the marketing. That's what had changed. And that's why I'm buying into, well, I'm buying into collaboration this year, writing to market and rapid release as a launch technique. Those are the things I'm buying into. Now, at the end of the year, I might be hanging my head saying, that's another thing that didn't work very well for me. I don't know. Um, follow me on the journey on the podcast diary and you'll hear all about it, waltz and all, and you can find out how it's going. But hopefully having listened to the diaries, you'll know that there's, Oh, I don't know that. I don't know whether there's a lot more that I could pour into it um, to try and make this work. I've listened to what Adam did. I'm following everything he did. I'm even collaborated with him for goodness sake and, and riding on the coattails of one of his rapid releases. So I'm trying to set myself up for success and launch. My launch technique is rapid release next. And really we'll have to wait and see at the end of the year when I'm doing my end of the re year review, how that's gone for me, whether it's worked out for me. And then I'll have to review that one at that point, I think. So we're at the last item on this list of 15 things I've changed my mind about in self-publishing. And last on that list is submitting to agents, going the traditional route. So I kind of touched on this when I was talking about Project Bloodhound, but um, I, I did actually go through a period of submitting to agents. So this is very separate to Project Bloodhound because Project Bloodhound, I would call Bookature and Project Bloodhound and Joff Books. They're what I would call, they're more of a hybrid model. They offer higher percentage of royalties. They do book bubs. They, they follow the best practice that indie authors use. Um, they provide sort of editors and marketers for you. So they take a bit of the marketing strain for you, but you get higher royalties. So I don't, I don't lump those in with the traditional route. This is very specifically the traditional route. And I, I tried the agent route. I read a lot of articles about how to get an agent. And I used to submit books to agents. And I think a couple of them asked for full manuscripts. It might not have been agents. It might have been publishers who did that. But I, I tried the traditional stuff at first. And I went to the writer's workshop event, as it was then, at York University. I've been there twice. And the first time I went, I paid for and booked sessions with agents. It was my first experience of traditional. And I have to say that when I, I sort of sat through the agent thing, um, I, I, I know this is awful, isn't it? But I just thought, who the hell are, you know, have you, how many books have you written? I, I know agents are great, right? I know agents are great at spotting books in the market, but I, I have a real problem if people kind of haven't done what they're criticizing me for, you know, so if you're criticizing me for writing a book, I kind of think, well, what's the book you wrote? And was that successful? And that's a mindset thing. And I probably need to get over it. Okay, so I know I'm a bad boy admitting that. But 
But I do often feel that I kind of like people to walk the walk a little bit. That's all. But I do recognize that agents, that that isn't actually an agent's job writing a book. An agent's job is to recognize a book that's going to sell well. It's a different skill. But I must admit to it getting my hackles up when um, I was sitting in those sessions and agents, are, uh, not all of them, agents are kind of having a go at you like you're um, some incompetent child in a classroom, you know, back in the 70s, if you if you remember those days, um, when they used to be able to, they could call you thick in those days. Um, and they did. And um, it takes me back to that kind of judgmental thing. And I don't like that experience. Um, and, and, and to be fair, not all the agents were like that, but a, a couple of them were very, very dismissive, very full of themselves. Um, and, and it's actually the attitude I don't like. It's not the job. It's the attitude. Um, that it's, that's the bit I don't like about it. But I, I, so I submitted to agents. I mean, clearly I didn't get anywhere with that. And I always remember I went to that writing festival and, and it stunned me how many people were going down the traditional route. I was like some heretic there as, a, as an indie author. And people were saying, oh, how many books have you done? I think I'd done three or four at the time. And, and they'd been spending three years write, writing this book. And they'd been coming back to the Festival of Writing, like for the last three years with the same book, giving it to agents. And I'm sorry, but, you know, maybe there's a bit of entrepreneur in me, but I just thought, well, you know, get stuffed. <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm not having somebody who hasn't written a book before sitting there getting all snotty nosed about my manuscript. And and, and I'd got four books published and, and these people still hadn't got the blasted book published. I'd said to a lady, we'd sat at dinner and she said, oh yeah, you know, I've been working on this for three years. I've rewritten it so many times. And I said, you could have had that book published and written another two in that time. And, and readers will tell you whether they like it or not. And in the meantime, you'll be getting better at writing. I get really, I'm really bad, aren't I, being told what to do? <laughs> I obviously, uh, we need a psychoanalyst on this show. I should get a psychoanalyzed one of these days, but I am. I, I don't respond well to being told what to do. Uh, I, I'm not good at that. That doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that you can't, I'm, I'm better guided than I am being told what to do. It, it's always to do with attitude with me. Uh, it, it, all to do with attitude all the time. So it's whether it gets my hackles up or whether you sort of take me with you. Uh, that's the difference. Honestly, I'm not that awkward. Um, but I did, uh, with the agent thing, I found it a fairly depressing experience. And I, I, I just got, in the end, I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm just not waiting for permission. I'm, I'm getting my books out. You know, I've got 20 books done. If I'd been waiting for agents. Oh, the other thing that, that brought me around to this way of thinking is that I was writing my Secret Bunker series the same time my sister was had painted some illustrations and was trying to get a book published. In the time it took her, the year it took her to get her five rejections from traditional authors, I'd got, I think I was working on my second trilogy. I got my second trilogy out and it was selling. I was selling books while she was still waiting for permission from somebody. And she hasn't pursued that book and she still hasn't got a book published. And she could have had that published if she self-published it. And so, you know, I'm not going to wait for permission from somebody else. My view is, and I've seen this enough times with other people, and in fact, many successful indie authors will say to you, well, if the money was huge, I'd take the deal. But actually, most of the time I can make more money on my own. And because I'm now actually earning more money on my own, and I'm incompetent, you know, I, I think I'm learning, I'm pretty bad at all of this stuff. I, I seem to make everything hard. You know, I don't seem to have a lot of luck with things. Um, and I'm still earning more than uh, the average traditional author earns, which is £10,000, whatever it is, you know, and that, that's me with all my incompetence doing that. So, so my feeling is, is that, you know, people 
put too much value on traditional. And that doesn't mean if you're, if you're a Stephen King, if you're a JK Rowling, it doesn't mean that it doesn't work for many people. And it also doesn't mean that if traditional came knocking on my door, offering to buy a series of my books for me and you know, crossing my palm with silver, I wouldn't take it because I would. Um, because as you know, I'm all about the income and the money. I'd watch the rights very carefully, but, um, you know, I probably would, but that is not going to be the route I take as my first route because my impression is that if I come up with a brilliant series of books, people will be banging on my door. Um, asking for the rights and, you know, Amazon will be there saying, can we put it into one of our imprints? If I write a great book that fires, people will be banging at my door anyway. I don't have to ask them for, for permission first. And in the meantime, I'm writing all these books. I'm getting better at writing. I'm learning. And so long as you have the mindset, you know, I've got loads more books left in me. I don't believe that uh, creativity is finite. I think it's infinite. I do think I love um, Joanna Penn's concept of refilling the creative well. I don't think you could just write, 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 head down all the time. Uh, I think you have to live. I think you have to very proactively make sure you're traveling. If you can't travel, then you sort of need to go places, do different things. You need to feed that creative source all the time, I think, if you're writing. But I don't believe that creativity is finite. So I believe I've got many, many, many more ideas left in me, even though I've, I've written 20 books. I'm not going to suddenly seize up and that's it, like a, an old car engine and, you know, I can't deliver any more mileage. It, that's, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so, so I believe that if I just keep writing, if I keep learning, if I keep getting feedback, if I keep trying new things like collaborations and things like that, um, then I'll get better. And what I hope is that at some point I'll strike gold. I'll have either an idea that resonates with people. I'll have one of those ideas that, uh, you know, that just fires, that people just love. And then when that happens, if I ever get that sort of, you know, gold, that seam of gold, seam of coal, seam of gold, whatever it is, you know what I mean? Um, and then people will bang on my door asking me if I want to sell the foreign rights or, you know, make a film or something like that. Um, and I'll make the money anyway. And in the meantime, I'm being productive and earning money anyway. Um, and that's my view of it. You know, I'm not going to wait for you to get round to giving me the time of day. I, I could just get on with it and do it anyway. So I feel, I feel quite sort of political with a small P about this. And I, and I have done the agent route and I just thought, you know, I'm not waiting for permission from you. I'm just going to get on with it. Um, and in the meantime, you know, I'm earning, I am earning thousands of pounds from my books. And I, I do believe that if I'd been submitting to agents, I'd still be waiting here, twiddling my thumbs, you know, waiting for somebody to give me permission to publish. So um, my view on this, and it might change, and remember, I, I'm not ruling out traditional at all. If traditional, if I ever got a really good traditional deal and it stacked up, of course I'd take it because I'm all about the income and the money. But what I'm saying is, is I'm not going to bet all my chips on traditional. I'm not going to move all my chips over there and say, right, I'm just going to write this book and I'm going to keep going back to writer's workshop. And every year the, um, the agents are going to tell me to change something else. And I'll keep coming back, you know, with my cap in my hand. I'm not doing that. That's what I'm not doing. I'm going to write books. I'm going to publish them. Readers can tell me if they think they're rubbish or not. If they're rubbish, they'll just die without a trace. If they're not, I'll make money from them. Uh, and all the time I'm learning and growing and developing. And when I'm doing that, I stand more chance of somebody thinking a book or writing that great book that we all want to write. So submitting to agents, nope, not doing that anymore, not doing the trad route, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't rule it out in the future if they offered to cross my 
palm with uh, silver. So there you go. Slightly different episode this week. 15 things I've changed my mind about in self-publishing. And no doubt I will change my mind about them in future. When I, when I do these diaries, I just constantly reserve the right to change my mind. Uh, and that's because uh, things change, life changes, uh, publishing landscape changes. I believe that if you remain fixed viewed, if you don't pivot, uh, then in this modern day and age, you just shrivel up and die. You've got to keep on the move. You've got to keep pivoting. Um, you've got to change your practice. You've got to change your technique. But the core things never change. And that is write a book, a good book and sell it. That's what we're trying to do. That will always be the same. Write great books and sell them. That's what we're trying to do here. And so long as all of these things that we're doing are aimed at that, achieving that, then hopefully we'll all get there in the end. So I hope that was uh, interesting for you. Do feel free to leave comments on social media, on this, uh, on the blog post, the show notes for today's podcast diary, and or just email me uh, directly. And remember though, that's where I am right now in August 2019. Give it another year, it might all change. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to this week's Paul's Podcast Diary. I'll be back off my holes next week. I'll have a proper and full diary for you next week. I'll give you a full update, let you know what I'm up to with my writing and my editing. But until then, have a fabulous week of writing and bye-bye for now. Thanks for listening to Paul's Podcast Diary. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed to hear next week's update and find out how many words get produced over the next seven days. Until then, we hope you have a great week of writing.